tell kids who want to learn the piano, I say, okay, here's you go. Start with middle C. We all know that as the first thing in a piano lesson. And then think about like the Eddie Cochran thing. I say, well, that's, that's a chord if you play those together. And you just got that, remember this and that. So you do that, one space, finger, one space, finger. So there you got the chord. I say, you know, we started there. Mm -hmm. And so you could kind of write a song with that. Yeah. But if you just move this up one, it's the same shape. Yeah. You've got another chord. Yeah. So now you've got two chords. Move it up again, you've got three chords. Yeah. And move it up again, you've got four chords. Yeah. And then again, you've got five. And then now you've got six. Well, you don't need more than that. Yeah. So you can now put permutations yeah. of that. And you get songs, you know, like... Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, hello, hello. Goodbye, 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 and hi, hi, hi. Welcome, one and all, to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. And remember... This is wide screen podcasting. This is wide screen podcasting. Of course, I'm your host, Sam Wiles. Thank you all for tuning in. I hope you're all well, safe and sound. Today, everyone, we will be delaying the inevitable off the ground episode once again. Why? Well, I actually have a good reason this time around. And as you have seen by the title of this episode, it is because we have some brand new Paul McCartney content to discuss. Well, Arguably, it's some new content, but that's all going to be part of the discussion. Yes, today, folks, we're going to be doing a deep dive on the new Hulu slash Disney Plus documentary series, McCartney 321. In summary, the show is a six-part series where producer Titan Rick Rubin and the living god, that is, Paul McCartney, spend some time in a soundstage doing nothing more than listening to Paul McCartney's music playing Paul McCartney's music, and watching Paul play his music. This is all interspersed with some pretty surprisingly insightful conversations between Rubin and McCartney, where they break down his career and his songwriting process from his beginnings as a Beatle right up until his launch into a full-on solo career. Basically, it's what we do here at Paul or Nothing, only it has a much bigger budget, and stops hard at 1980 with McCartney 2 material. Now, I thought this was going to be an episode I was going to be doing on my own as I was doing my notes, but fortunately, friend of the show and regular One Sweet Dream co-chair Dr. Duncan Driver happened to randomly ask me on Facebook what I thought of the show, and before I knew it, one thing led to another, and he wound up being today's guest. I am so sorry there, Duncan. And... I'm glad we were able to put this episode together so quickly because this series is one of those releases where I am absolutely dying to hear all of my peers and my cohorts' thoughts on this. But I also want to keep my 
own thoughts, kind of pure. So I haven't been able to listen to any of those shows up until now anyway. So by the time you are listening to this very episode, everyone out there, I will probably be listening as you are right now to some episode of Two Legs or Untitled Beatles podcast or Things We Said Today, yada, yada, yada. But yeah, folks, as of late, nothing too complicated. This is a topic I've been eager to discuss. This is a person I enjoy discussing McCartney with. It should work out in the end, I guess. And since me and Dr. Duncan do indeed cover everything you will ever need to know about this series, I won't be doing a quote-unquote brief intro segment with the backstory, and we'll simply go right into the interview after the housekeeping. Speaking of which... Housekeeping! So, what do we have in terms of news for today? Well, firstly, everyone, my three-imagined merch box set finally arrived in the post. I am so elated. If you've been following us on our Instagram and Twitter page, you will have seen me plugging all of this merch already. And I'm wearing some of it right now. I actually haven't shown this yet. But I got the the long sleeve uh, three-imagined shirt, and I love this. I, I think this is a lovely piece of apparel shall we say and the dice designs going down both of the off the long sleeves yeah that's well up my alley <laughs> i actually wore this out with my classic mccartney cap that i'm also wearing now the other day and no one i interacted with brought it up at all i think everyone just accepts that that's a part of sam now that's who i am but yeah what came in the box uh, the uh, shirt itself was not part of the box set but what you did get, let me bring it over here. First of all, you got some dice, some three-imagined McCartney dice. I'm not sure if these were the same ones that were part of the promo set because they came with the names of the artists on them. Like you would have like Phoebe Bridges or St. Vincent or Josh Hom on it or something like that. And these dice are uh, on four of the sides. They've got different coloured three sides, you know, McCartney three. Then on one side they've got the word McCartney, and then on the other side they've got three imagined. Really nice little dice tin and dice collection there. Cracking a little piece of memorabilia, of course. Then you've got the McCartney three imagined or three imagined notebook. This is something I'm actually totally going to use. I'm already using it as a little bit of a diary at the moment, because of course, why not? You also get some McCartney 3 imagined pencils to use in it, though I think I'm definitely going to leave these wrapped up and not actually ever write anything with them. You know, I don't want the value of these two small pencils to ever decrease now, do I? Then you get four rather lovely little Polaroids of the three imagined dice. You get a green one, a red one, a purple one and a yellow one. I did at least. I wonder if other people got different colours. That'd be quite interesting. And then finally, of course, you get a copy of the album with the unique album artwork on the front with that kind of trippy paisley design. And then you get the alternate artwork on the back with Paul on the horse. Very nice indeed. Would it be something I would have ever considered buying if I didn't have the wonderful support of my Patreon patrons uh, of course not no definitely not the the shirt maybe but the box set was definitely a vanity purchase on my part i will admit 
it's of course fun to review for the show and I will say the package itself was entirely well presented it comes in a gorgeous three-imagined box and it was all packaged gorgeously and it is a nice little collection for what it is and if you've got the money why not and it's a great gift you know if you know a McCartney fan and I, I don't think it's sold out go and go out and check out Paul McCartney's web store now and double check because it is a fun little product and I do enjoy it. It is quality. It is nicely made, and you know I can't I can't slate it outside of just the fact that it was very expensive for what you get. I was kind of expecting a little bit more, but hey, you know that's what the support of my wonderful patrons is all about. It gives me a chance to look at all of this stuff up close and give it the good old review. And yeah, if you've got the cash, why not? But that seems to be a running theme with a lot of Paul McCartney merchandise and superfluous purchases. But, you know, either way, I kind of wanted the CD just to go with my vinyl copy anyway. And when I saw that the CD came with this box set, I just thought, ah, sod it, why not? Anyway, enough about me. The Welsh band Super Fairy Animals has gone ahead and finally released the isolated audio of Paul McCartney chewing some celery that they used for their single Receptacle for the Respectable back in 2001. And if you don't know the story, the band met Paul and they remixed some Beatles music that was used as part of the Liverpool sound collage. So I'm sure we'll talk about them in the future. And so to return the favour, Paul appeared on their single in the form of the sound of him eating some celery. This was likely a reference to the fact that Paul is credited as playing the celery on the Beach Boys song Vegetables from 1967, and now to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the Super Furry Animals 2001 album Rings Around the World, we have this isolated audio that we're going to play right now. Now, that clearly isn't the unedited, raw audio of Paul eating the celery. Uh, if he was, then he'd be one of the sloppiest, loudest eaters ever. But I think it's safe to say that, that that's a section of the audio looped. You know, that was the Super Furry Animal's favourite munch, shall we say. <laughs> also, apparently, just as a side note, Rings Around the World was the first album to ever be edited in 5.1 surround sound, which I thought was quite interesting. Rounding us out now with some actual news... And oddly enough, this is a story that is literally going to be impacting the conversation you are about to hear today, folks. So it's very serendipitous indeed. So apparently the promoter behind Jimi Hendrix's first UK tour has recently come out with a book. And to help promote it, he's done 
a very interestingly stirring interview. So we all know the story behind the Beatles releasing Sgt. Pepper and Jimi Hendrix learning it over the weekend before then playing it before a crowd that included Paul McCartney. And now this promoter has come right out and challenged what he calls Paul's dining out on this story. And here's what he had to say about that evening. It was unusual, even on a Monday night, to have virtually nobody there who was famous, except for one person who claims he was and who has dined out on it for the past 50 years, Mr. Paul McCartney. He says it was one of the most important days of his life, but I can't recall him being there. Again, this is going to be later discussed in much greater detail with my guest, but yeah, I'll just let that sit with you, let that percolate. Anyway, that is the news, folks, so we'll move on to the plugs now. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. I always want to hear your thoughts and your Paul McCartney stories. And we do indeed have a couple of emails to read out today. You know, emails are like buses. You never get any, and then two come along at once. The first one is from Mr. B, a.k.a. Bowie or Bowie. I can never remember. Either way, he was one of our first top-tier Either way, he was either way, he was indeed our first top-tier patron, thanks to his mum's credit card, and this is what he has to say. And so I'm always more than happy to read out any of his correspondence, and this is what he had to say. Hello Sam, I've recently watched an older episode of the pod where you and Tom made your own War and Peace. This was uh, me and Tom Hunyani doing our own custom album where we put Total War and Pipes of Peace together. He continues... I was bored, and so I made my own. Both sides are really pushing the time limit. Both sides, both sides are really pushing the time limit, but it's okay. In my own version of the story, the album was released in '83. The first single in 1981 was "Dress Me Up as a Robber" with a B-side of "Get It." The second single is 1982, "Ebony and Ivory" with a B-side of "What's That You're Doing." I think I released that one as well around the same time. Great minds think alike. The third single, a month before the album, is a double A side of Take It Away and Ballroom Dancing. And the fourth and final single, released a month after the album, is Say 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 with the B side of The Man. I think I released that one as well. Anyway, on to his War and Peace. On his side one, we've got Tug of War, Take It Away, So Bad, Sweetest Little Show, Average Person, the pound is sinking, and through our love. Then, opening up on side two, we've got Pipes of Peace, Not Such a Bad Boy, which is a great addition. It's Not On, of oh, a song that I've grown more and more to love of late. Tug of Peace, obviously he's going after my heart there. Then the Be What You See Link, Wanderlust, Here Today, Twice in a Lifetime, and Christian Bop slash Pop. We, we really are pushing it for time there, Mr. B, aren't we? He fu- Anyway, he concludes with, I know you like to fluff your show, so you are indeed welcome. Also, I'm really enjoying the podcast lately, and thank you for all of your hard work, Mr. B. Of course, Mr. B, thank you so much for that email there. And what an interesting version of War and Peace we have there. I think there are no two that are ever going to be alike because not only do you have the material that was on the album, but you've also got all of the bonus stuff and the B-sides as well. 
and not only are you dealing with people's likes and prejudices of one album, you're dealing with two plus. You know, there's just so much material to contend with. And I'm glad the episode inspired you to come up with your own list because that's what we are trying to do here at Poor and All Nothing. We're trying to generate that kind of conversation. So if anyone else out there has their own um, you know, especially if it's a particularly unique take on the war and peace concept, if you've got your own little story or meta-narrative there, like Mr. B here, please do get in touch and send in your own. But, um, yeah, just got to say, uh, as a final little comment there, the uh, triple run of Not Such a Bad Boy, It's Not On and Tug of Peace would definitely have interested me as a listener at any point in time, whether it was released in 82, 83, or I would discover it in 2021. That just sounds badass to me. Our next email is from another of our patrons, Mr. Richard Campbell. And folks, this is another listener who knows I like to pad out my episodes, and so he has kindly sent me a mini essay for you to evaluate here. And I think more so than any of the other emails we've had here on the show, this is going to be one where I am going to have to stop and start an awful lot. And I can't do an impression of Richard here like I do with Paul, so please do bear with me. I'll uh, try and keep it as simple as possible when I'm flitting back and forth. He starts, Hi Sam, been going back to listen to some of your older shows and now I'm on London Town. I must tell you, I find some of your views on this one kind of strange. Not as strange as your recent criticism of the Yellow Submarine film, though. And then he puts in brackets, Who breaks a butterfly on a wheel? You say you don't like it because you have a better Yellow Submarine in your head. Huh? Yellow Submarine is an eye candy feast with great songs, best experienced in another kind of mind. And then he he gives, like, two examples. I mean, I hate Star Wars because I wanted it to be a robot war movie where Luke Skywalker is a cyber assassin. I hate Chinatown because I wanted it to be a docudrama about a restaurateur. Just just to respond to that, I don't believe I said I disliked Yellow Submarine as a film at all. I, uh, I don't think I did. I, I don't think I did say that. I'm going to have to go back to that episode and check it out. But yeah, I don't think it's speaking out of turn to say that it's it's very different and possibly flawed in terms of its structure and, and narrative. I know that that's not the point of the movie, but that was just a point I was making on a particular aspect of it. I don't dislike it because it's not what I want it to be. I guess I was just making a comment about that it's 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 different. It's it's not what you get normally from any other film for better or worse, I guess. But anyway, back to the email. I don't really get your remarks about wings either. Diluted quality? Band on the run? That's down to you, mate, not wings. Venus and Mars? That's a fabulous album. I even like Red Rose Speedway, but I can't I can't help it if you think Jet is no good, but would rather listen to Temporary Secretary. To me, it's a brilliant dip into glam with wonderful lyrics and a superb vocal. Again, um, I don't think I, 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 I slagged off Band on the Run or, or Venus and Mars all that much on either of those episodes. Yeah, I gave Jet a good rinsing and yeah, I still do to to this day and I point out I think every time that it's uh, a subjective point that uh, I I find the song overplayed like I, I remember my dad felt that Isn't She Lovely by Stevie Wonder was an overplayed track I'm sure many people 
feel the same. But even if it is objectively overplayed, some people will still like the song enough and won't feel that way. Um, did I say there was diluted quality on Band on the Run or Venus and Mars? I certainly don't feel that way about these albums now. I think you definitely need to go maybe jump ahead and check out some of the Listen With Sam episodes where I revisit a lot of these albums and I kind of refine and um, touch up a lot of my thoughts on these albums because, you know, my thoughts do change on them daily almost. So so it is kind of hard to justify my opinions from several years ago, especially in the format of the show because... You know, this is me purposefully not being an expert in Paul McCartney and listening to all of this music for the first time. So, of course, my opinions are going to change over the course of this show. Again, both of these views so far, I either don't remember and I certainly don't hold now. He continues, Why does everybody also default to... Paul never had anyone around him to say, no, that sucks, like he did in The Beatles. But never say that about John, who wrote some god-awful trash in the early 70s and made a tepid last album that is treated with a reverence it doesn't deserve, I suppose due to his horrific death. Um, I think people do say the exact same about Lennon. I've, I've definitely heard that criticism, especially in defence of McCartney, the idea that You know, people always say that Paul never had anyone around him, and I'm sure I've parroted that opinion before. I won't won't deny that. But, yeah, you know, every action has an equal and opposite reaction, and (laughs) due to that law of thermodynamics, John would need Paul in the same way. And I, I I do agree with you. The last album is nowhere near as good as anyone says it is, and even some of his stuff in the early 70s is pretty naff as well he continues and hold on did paul respond to criticism while in the beatles or was he a control freak critics really should make up their minds about this the same wags who bitch about the bloody-minded recording of maxwell yammer on about how when he was in the fabs there were people like this to tell him that's naff dude okay well then i'll bin it i guess lads what do you have john oh bungalow bill masterpiece and you george oh piggies wonderful so glad my song's in the trash to make room for these jewels of songwriting back to london town the title track is why after having sold my copy of the lp in 1980 i rebought it around 1990 it puts me in the mind of my months living in that city i can feel the rain i can see the actor i'm an actor with an ordinary life myself anyway it puts me there The problem with the LP is that there's not enough songs as good as that one. Nonetheless, there's enough there that I'm kind of glad that I have the record. Also, your guest, Morris's Is That An Attempt at Penny Lane, is kind of a missed goal by a mile remark. Also often made occasionally by the otherwise erudite Duncan Driver. I guess today, obviously. Like what? I'll have some of what he's smoking. Anyway, to me, London Town is the second strongest song on the record. Again, from this era, I hated Mole at the time, being into punk and new wave, but was swept away by it in concert in 2010, as he sang it accompanied by the full Toronto pipe band. Perhaps it's my Scottish heritage. Also, your relief that Morris's shared view of I'm carrying is ill-placed. 
Listening to two people agree that something is a piece of shit song after song for an hour and a half may make you both feel good about yourselves, i.e. we're both so smart, but it really makes for a fucking boring podcast listen. I'd have someone on who actually likes the record and struck some sparks, or someone like me who thinks the album is tepid but enthusiastic about some of its songs. I had much more fun listening to the natter about nothing you just had with the Ranking the Beatles duo. Listen, last night it was great, and Jesus, you are a great mimic. Or just about any other episodes I've heard in your collection so far. Not going to listen to part two. Oh well, I do appreciate all the work you put into these shows, and it is a lot. I'm not supposed to love them all, I guess. Ever onward, and many thanks. Richard Campbell. Oof, there's an awful lot to unpack there with uh, the last of that London town stuff. But first of all, Richard, as always, thank you so much for your correspondence there. And I am bowled over that anyone would have so much to say about anything I've done, good or bad. But yeah, on to some of the specifics of the last bit there. Firstly, flippant as it may sound, I think any song where Paul is describing any place, a physical place in reality, can have comparisons drawn between it and Penny Lane. Also, I still think the song London Town itself is overall still one of the weaker entries in the McCartney canon. It is just my own personal opinion there, though. I'd also argue, in terms of my guest Morris, who I've been meaning to get back on the show in some capacity at some time, not being necessarily the biggest fan of the album is one of the things I really like about that episode. I think um, having someone on who de facto likes the album you are reviewing can equally, if not with greater frequency, result in a boring episode. Again, my opinion there. One of the things I love about my episodes with Dylan CV, my good friend there, so much is that we so regularly disagree on even the most minute things. And that leads to some of my most favourite impassioned debates between the two of us. I've already said, go back and check out some of my Listen With Sam episodes to see some of my more updated opinions, but do stick around and check out the London Town one, which is indeed the next one we just did, Wings at the Speed of Sound. And Richard, I will certainly be keeping you in mind as I'm preparing my notes for that episode and listening to it several times before and on the day. But until that time, Richard, thank you for that email there. There was certainly a lot to address there. Though I will say thank you for your very kind comments right at the end there. I did too enjoy my episode with the ranking the Beatles duo, Julia and Jonathan. And, you know, calling me a great mimic is always going to result in the ending of the email ending on a positive note for me so well done there but yeah thank you for that email and folks if you want to be like either of the correspondents today and you want to have your email read out the show and have me respond to it then drop us an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com also follow us on our twitter page for more daily updates and more instant access find us at mccartneypod follow the sister blog for more written paul or nothing content check out paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com follow us on the socials find us on Facebook, Instagram and on YouTube by typing in Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast of course YouTube is the only place where you the listener can go and check out Macca in Your Attic the sister side series to Paul or Nothing it is filmed of course so that's why it is on YouTube if you want to know what I look like you can go and check 
me out there. Mac It In Your Attic is a show where me and a guest go through their attic and they show me their junk, aka five rare, unique or sentimental items from their Paul McCartney slash Beatles memorabilia collections. Now, between the recording of this episode you're about to listen to and the last one me and Duncan did on Unplugged, uh, the official bootleg, we actually recorded an episode of Macca in Your Attic, though by the time this episode comes out, I don't think that will yet be released, but you can go and check it out right now on our Patreon page. If you don't want to do that, simply wait a few weeks, it'll be on the YouTube page, and you will get to see Duncan's own five McCartney items of memorabilia. Now, if you want to help out the show right away, in a way that takes less than 30 seconds, maybe please consider leaving a review for the show. Yes, whatever platform you are on, whether it's stars or thumbs up or likes or whatever, if you could give us a nice positive review there, maybe say something nice about the show in the comments, then it would be most appreciated. And if you want to help out the show directly, if you want to help see the show grow and expand, maybe you want to help keep the lights running, or maybe you just want to buy me a coffee for all of that hard work I've put into the show. (laughs) I jest, of course. But if you are enjoying Poor or Nothing and you enjoy everything you've been getting out of the show and you want to give something back, then please consider joining our Patreon family. Yes, Patreon is the place where you, the public, can support independent content creators such as myself, but it is not just a needless GoFundMe. You do get your money's worth. You get two days early access to all episodes of Paul or Nothing. You get one week early access to all episodes of Macca in Your Attic. You get access to the instant Paul or Nothing video feed, so all episodes podcast or Mac It In Your Attic are immediately uploaded to the feed, sometimes weeks and months ahead of their initial release schedule. You can go and check them all out now. You get access to raw audio, unedited audio, lost episodes. You get access to the scripts I use for all of the episodes and much more. Of course, I am incredibly grateful that I have any Patreon support at all and I always bring it up in conversation especially when it comes to like the pricing of McCartney merch and product because it is you lovely people out there that help fund my access to especially some of the more uh, rare or expensive McCartney gear my gear <laughs> but yeah huge shout out to the Patreon family which includes newcomers Andy Cochran and Steve Long as well as Guy Jenkinson Richard Campbell Kim Christopher Newman Mrs. P, Broderick Harper, Moti Ryber, Robert Shuley, Christian Perry, Richard Driver, Chris Atkinson, Richard Binnington, Mr. B, Teresa Brader, Stephanie Miller, Lou DiLonardo, Cheryl McCoy, Katrina S, Sam Hode, Anastasia L, Robert Carabelli, Warren Butson, and Matt Phillips. And now, folks, at time of recording, I am actually about 10 minutes away from my actual conversation with... Dr. Duncan Driver concerning McCartney 321. Wish me best of luck because I'm about to add the audio to the end of what you're about. Because I'm about to add the audio. Because I'm about to add what. Because I'm about to add what I'm. Because I'm about to add the audio to the end of what you're listening to right now. Let's see how it turns out. One, two, three. Let's see how it turns out. One, two, three. Let's go. Ringo. What do you remember about this? At the time, I was just working with this bloke, John. 
now I look back and I was working with John Lennon. All my loving I will send to you. We were writing songs that were memorable because we had to remember them. How did this happen? It was a question of me, John, or George becoming the bass player. The two of them said, well, I'm not doing it. When could you look back and realize what we did back then was really special? I clearly remember when Ringo kicked in. It was like, wow, he's really good. I can tell you, but I know it's mine. Oh, I get by with help from my friend. A good little song. I brought in the chords, and then George Martin said, it'd be nice if we could have a little intro. And Harrison just went, do, 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 do. Yeah, it was good, you know. What you got now? Got this one. The sea in the sky with diamonds. Ah, <laughs> this is why we don't go into tapes. Ah. It's beautiful. Number one in the USA. That was a party night. That's where the audience applauds. You go, wait for it, <laughs> wait for it. Clearly, yeah. these guys are going for it. We were warned, don't go out late. And the car pulls up. Some guys jumped out, one of them had a knife, and they took all our demos. We were hippies, we just did not listen. I want to read to you one thing. Paul is one of the most innovative bass players that ever played bass, and the stuff that's going on now is ripped off from his Beatle period. He's a great, great musician. Did I write that? That is John Lennon. That's John. Yeah. I hadn't heard that. That's beautiful. Okay, folks, without any further ado, it's time for me to bring on today's guest. You will all know him as one of the regular co-chairs all over on the mighty One Sweet Dream podcast, where he's recently actually been directly appealing to me with Dan actually doing a three-part deep dive on RAM. You know, what more could I want? He's an assistant professor at the University of Canberra. He's an author, an actor, and even more importantly than all of that real-life stuff, folks, he's also been on this podcast before. He's also been on Macca in Your Attic. So please help me welcome him back to this show again. Please welcome back Dr. Duncan Driver. What's going on, dude? How are you doing? I'm doing well, apart from a broken elbow, um, <laughs> which is healing from slowly. It's just my own, you know, stupidity and not being able to ride a bike properly. But it's lovely to be back. Um, you know, doing things like this distracts me from the the pain associated with a broken limb. I'm glad there are so many uh, run-throughs here. Beards, love of Beatles, cycling. You know, there's a, a lot of, a lot of commonalities here. Maybe, maybe there are there are other Beatles hosts that can attest to that. I'm not sure, though. I think on things we said today one of their hosts is also very accident prone and has broken one of his arms as well so there's there's lots of concentric circles running here that's right oh so sorry to hear about that but it it also is a little little bit funny as a cyclist myself yeah yeah that's right i I, i'm I'm happy for people to find it amusing Uh, you know if you can't laugh at yourself etc 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 I mean, as much as I'd like to get into Three Imagined and the new song and the new music video, that's all literally going to be in the next episode. So I'm actually going to have to do some editorial work on myself, which I rarely ever do. So I think we should just go straight into McCartney 
three, two, one. And I think to set the scene, I'm going to read the press statement. Never before have fans had the opportunity to hear Paul McCartney share, and in such expansive celebratory detail, the experience of creating his life's work with more than 50 years of culture defining music. To be an observer of Paul and Rick Rubin deconstruct how some of the biggest hits in history came to be is truly enlightening. Hmm. Okay. (laughs) First of all, how did you come to know of this show's existence? I remember last year, and it was around the time we also became aware of the existence of McCartney 3, that this is a thing that was going to be happening. And we didn't know that many details. So we didn't know what platform it was going to be on. We didn't know, I think, whether this was going to be a feature-length documentary or whether it was going to be episodic. And so I was waiting with bated breath for about another six months or so to mm-hmm. see exactly what what the, the format, what, what way, shape or form it was going to be delivered to us. Um, I'm pleased that it came in, in six three-half-hour episodes that were quite digestible. Although um, I think that in some ways the... The themes associated with each of them may have been a little tokenistic. And I don't mean that necessarily as a criticism. I just mean that I didn't really notice that one episode was more explicitly focused on songwriting. (laughs) Oh, hang on. Hang hang on. They seem to kind of bleed into each other quite a lot. We've got to look this up because there's actually titles for the episodes as well. And there's even... Uh, episode like little stingers to, to tell you what 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 each episode is about. I can't remember the first one. I remember I think the second show was called the the notes that like each other, which was a lovely title. Yes, that's a, a, a direct direct quote, obviously from Paul. There, come on, Wikipedia, McCartney three two one series. Yes, episode one. These things bring you together. Paul McCartney talks about his early years in the music industry, including his boyhood friendships with John Lennon and George Harrison. Now, doesn't that sound like every episode of this show? Really? <laughs> it sounds uh, like every McCartney interview of at least the last 30 years. Okay, the next one's a bit more specific. The, the notes that like each other. McCartney discusses his influences, ranging from Johann Sebastian Bach to Fela Kuti. The people who we loved were loving us. McCartney lists musicians that inspired the Beatles, as well as their formative trips to India. The next one is pretty sinful here. Like professors in a laboratory... McCartney and Rubin break down the methods the Beatles used to change musical conventions. Now, I'm not being flippant, folks. That literally is every episode of this show, especially yeah. the first one. I think it's all Beatles stuff at first. But uh, I, I mean, uh, we'll, say, we'll put a pin in it and save it for later. But one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, as a Paul McCartney podcaster, did you find that this series was maybe a little too Beatles-focused? Oh, but that's that's something I have to deal with on a, on a daily basis anyway, regardless. Yeah. Even when I'm looking at an interview specifically designed to promote Venus and Mars in 75, half of it is still about the Beatles. And it's like, <laughs> you know, that's my cross to bear. I think it's a Paul McCartney fan's cross to bear, really. Uh, and it's one that I, I bear with equanimity. I, I'm, not, I'm not too upset about hearing more about the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Although sometimes I would... And again, it's something we'll get to, I'm sure, that um, Paul didn't necessarily tell the same stories all the time. And sometimes I wish the stories he told were fact-checked before he told them. 
Oh, <laughs> we've got something specific at, at uh, some point to bring up in, in this episode that actually has recently just come out in the news and is in the news segment for this episode, pre-recorded, like very exciting stuff, on the board right. kind, kind of stuff. Just going back a sec, I found out about this purely through the trailer, and the trailer for this, I must admit, folks, was one of the most enrapturing things ever. I was very, I was very excited for this, and it really sold the visuals for the show that we'll definitely talk about as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the vast history of Beatles docs and docu-series, had anything like this ever really existed, or at least what it kind of promised, I guess? Because I, I don't think anything like this will ever live up to people's expectations. But I don't think Hulu is fibbing when they say that there really hasn't been a show like this, at least in the sense that there's someone on Paul's level talking to him about this for 15 hours. That's right. Yeah, if you think that what exists in the McCartney canon to compare it to, it's only things like the James Paul McCartney TV special or One Hand Clapping. And there are, there are elements that cross over in the Venn diagram of McCartney televisual specials, mm-hmm. but those are much, much more focused on performance. I suppose it's, it's, um, it's slightly sad to admit that now I don't think Paul is quite up to spontaneous performances as, of his own material as, as, he, as he would have been in years past. Mm-hmm. And like the example that I can think of in 321 that really hits home for me is when he's playing Maybe I'm Amazed perfectly on the piano. And they cut after like three seconds of it or something, yeah. That's right. And, and you can see that he's singing the song to himself in his own head, but he's no longer able to sing along to his own piano accompaniment. And that, that is melancholy to what? I mean, it's a natural function of age that a man who's approaching 80 can no longer sing one of the most difficult songs he's ever written that other singers talk about it in terms of difficulty. So, you know, I'm not having a go at him, but that, I think that's part of the reason why this is more of, of an arty reaction video over six episodes than it is Paul talking about and then demonstrating his musical abilities. An arty reaction video, that's really... <laughs> <laughs> Don't you think? Black and white shots of Rick Rubin and Paul McCartney listening to his tracks and, <laughs> and kind of nodding along and then looking wild-eyed at Paul and Paul just chewing gum in response. This is such a streaming show, isn't it? Like, if you tried to pitch this to, to the BBC, they would be like, what? excuse me? What are you, what are you, what are you about? Because this is such a, I'm not going to say superfluous or in the ether kind of programme, because there are some... St- uh, things you can learn from this and especially if it's the first thing you watch then i couldn't imagine anything better but it's definitely a fluff piece in the best possible sense it is it, you know it's everything's presented in the best possible way there's not really any dark ruminations there's nothing particularly controversial in it and it is it is just kind of three hours of just watching two guys like you say just going yeah that's awesome isn't it there's not a point where they go right. Let's let's listen to a song Paul doesn't like. I thought <laughs> that was a missed opportunity because I mean yeah, the the, the closest thing we get is Paul slightly saying, "Oh, I, I wish I'd done the synths differently on Waterfalls." It's like, oh, bombshell, you know. Um, I know, and I remember Paul 
calls waterfalls a deep cut that only deep fans will know about. They go, oh, Paul, it was a single. Yeah. And <laughs> it was like a middling level fan that Paul McCartney is aware of the existence of that song. If you yeah. want to talk deep cuts, we're gonna, that's going to be a whole separate list of tracks. Yeah. Same time next year. That's a deep cut, Paul. You know, there we go. Absolutely. Something like Yvonne is, is maybe more. <laughs> Yvonne's the one, yeah. No, I, I wonder if he even actually remembers those songs anymore, you know? Well, probably not. If he doesn't remember writing Goodbye and somebody had to, had to jog his memory that that's a song that exists that he wrote, and that's kind of Beatles period where most of his memories seem to have crystallised. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that, that a lot of the stuff he wrote in what we have called his vest years in another episode of the podcast uh, probably have, have all disappeared from memory. Yeah. Well, let's get into the main issue, the thing that will be on everyone's mind with any show like this. Are there any news stories? So straight up, did you personally learn any new anecdotes from this series? Yeah, I did. There, there are a number of things in it that I consider to be really interesting, perhaps even revelatory. Let me give you an example. The fact that Paul can remember and then play a riff from a fellow Cootie concert he went to 46 years earlier, I thought was incredible. Mm-hmm. And it's an example of how much this man lives and breathes music in, at a kind of superhuman level. I thought that was that was uh, just an amazing testament to his his musical ability. What else? I think the fact that he used what I think the Beatles called the sneaky chord to compose Michelle, and he talks about you know I, I know the story about learning it from a guy in a guitar shop in Liverpool, but I didn't know that that directly led to how he composed Michelle. So I thought that was that was really interesting. Hearing a snippet of a new song, which I think went something like, life can be hard, but then that's when you start to put it together again. That was amazing. And it looked like it had been edited in such a way that you only heard the beginning part of a longer performance because Paul refers to having bottled his, uh, his attempt at playing it. And it sounded fine. It sounded great. So maybe we didn't hear all of it. I, I'm really looking mm-hmm. forward to hearing that. I don't know whether that's from his... It's a Wonderful Life musical, or, or whether it's just oh, a song. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. It could be. It could be a song for Wirral the Squirrel to sing. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, amongst the revelations of this series is the fact that Paul's talent is so great that apparently it can make furniture levitate. Did you notice that? No. What? Is there, is there a floating chair in one shot? Or there something? is. At, at two, in two separate episodes, I noticed. There appears to be a bentwood chair floating <laughs> in mid-air. So that, that's... that's okay, that needs no, to go on the Twitter. I'll tell you when it is. The so people who are listening can go back and check that I'm not insane. In episode three, right at the beginning, as they're discussing back in the USSR, there is a fucking chair floating in mid-air. And it's there again in episode five when they're reacting to maybe I'm amazed. So Paul's music is so good. Um, uh, it, it, it literally defies the laws of gravity. That's, um, that's something I was impressed by. Someone's going to say, you, you can see the ghost of John in the background of one shot. <laughs> now, you know, you know, that white feather that was sort of hovering in the background for a second, yes. 
It's interesting though that we um, in the way that we just touched on like his vest years because there's this hope, there's this hope that all McCartney fans I assume have that this lyric slash autobiography book is going to be packed to the brim with trivia on songs like San Ferian and Through Our Love. And it's not just going to be a 300-page book on Band on the Run, Jet, uh, Live and Let Die, Maybe I'm Amazed, and Beatles songs. Because if it is, it's going to be a waste of my Patreon's patrons' money. Uh, <laughs> like, do, do you think he's even interested in trying to remember half of these songs that we want to, to talk about? Uh, well, I think the fact that it's a sort of biography, um, but also not, <laughs> is very Paul. He likes being revelatory, but at the same time concealing himself. So he's kind of doing it in this kaleidoscopic way, uh, talking briefly about how certain songs might have been inspired or what they mean to him. But that, from what I've read, it seems that it's going to be arranged... Um, it's going to be arranged, um, uh, you know, um, according to the letters of the alphabet. So, oh, really? Yeah, it's, it's not going to tell a particular story. You're just going to be getting these little glimpses throughout time that um, that work to conceal as much as to, again, very poor. Yeah, that is very poor. And hopefully, it'll be a nice, a nice uh, sister piece to McCartney three, two, one. Maybe you know, just a kind of visual of uh, Sir Mums that I'm sure he will repeat in that. I wonder if there are any lost Paul interviews, just on a, another little note, like maybe some lost Playboy-esque interview where he does go through every song on Pipes of Peace and play, and uh, press, press to Play, you know. It was probably lost in some sort of Warner Brothers fire. Yeah, it can be revealing, but it depends on... The, the level of comfort he feels with the interviewer. And, and it depends on the period in time. So I think in a lot of those um, 1960s, 1970s interviews, he's remarkably unguarded. Mm -hmm. He tells you exactly what he thinks. And, and even right up to the Chris Salovich interview in, I think, 85, he's still being very, very candid. But it seems to be more that, you know, once they enter the anthology period and beyond, there's more of a wall of professionalism in front of everything he says. And you, you never quite yeah. know exactly how much of the whole truth you're getting. I mean, it's funny you should mention the Salowitz interview because like kind of like just after then, isn't that when he gets Richard Ogden as a new manager as well? So maybe it's new, man new management kind of saying, look, Paul, you got to save all, all this information so you can release a, an autobiography lyric book in 2021, you know? Uh, well, let's move oh, that. Oh, that would be wonderful. It does. It does make sense. Now, a proper question that definitely you, you and me would would uh, discuss at length that other people would think is quite boring. What do we think of the title, McCartney Three Two One? I puzzled over it for a long time. I couldn't quite. I knew you would. <laughs> uh, um, I, I thought for a long time that it, it suggests that because they speak so much about the Beatles in this, it almost is suggestive that members of the band are slowly dying off. <laughs> and, you know, one of them left and then none I don't think that was the intention I, I think that if anything it was originally designed as a tie-in for the release of McCartney 3 yeah, I was thinking that, yeah. McCartney 3, 2, 1 
and the fact that a retrospective look over Paul's career would at least go as far back as 1970. Um, you know, it's a 50-year retrospective on its own, just that. And so looking back over McCartney 3, McCartney 2, McCartney 1 would, would make sense. And there is maybe a slightly discreet emphasis on songs from the first two McCartney albums mm -hmm. in this. I mean, maybe a little bit of Band on the Run as well. I mean, we hear nothing from Ram. We hear nothing from... Oh, Bruce. God, no, uh, folks. The fact that we hear nothing from Ram. Not not even Uncle Al, but like, you know, the go-to song uh yeah, uh, solo pause. Yeah, yeah, so, so, yeah, yeah. I, I thought that McCartney 3-2-1 made sense if it was a time for the promotion of McCartney 3, which it didn't really end up being. Although I live in hope, and so maybe we can expect some uber deluxe box sets of all three McCartney albums mm. packaged together called McCartney 321. Um, maybe with in, in lieu of um, a set of garden gnomes, maybe there could be uh, some McCartney dice and a little reproduction of a bowl of cherries included. No, I want a metal cast iron Rick Rubin and McCartney to go in my garden. Rick Rubin in a kind of seated Buddha pose. Yes, and if you get the deluxe deluxe set, you get the uh, control board just to uh, stand them at as well. And and a levitating chair that you can put anywhere. <laughs> levitating chair. Oh, man. I mean, I'm definitely going to end up hopefully getting the Rick Rubin look, you know, if I... Yeah, you're well I, on the way. If I keep going. I, I thought he, Rick Rubin looked fantastic in this. I thought he was such a magnanimous figure. I was like, oh, my God, I can't stop staring at this man's hair. <laughs> you know, like probably like in in the way that like people in the fifties couldn't stop looking at Elvis's hips or Buddy Holly's glasses. I was just like transfixed, you know. But this this is a um, an odd title. I thought as well. Like you said, I thought it was going to tie into something like three, two, one. Sadly, like you say, none of that really happened. And I wonder if a in the yeah, I think it was described as fifteen hours of footage was piled down to the three. Maybe there was a section where Paul went through McCartney three songs that was just axed. Uh, may, maybe there were sections where Paul went through more obscure parts of his career. I can see that being axed. But the thing that comes to my mind immediately is even before the camera started rolling, someone in production, I mean, I know Rick Rubin was the executive producer, but he's, he's not got sole control over, over this. I'm guessing someone said, nah, this needs to be Beatle focused. And yeah. to get to get sour at that is 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 uh, something not worth doing, you know. Choose to spend your time being happy. <laughs> of course, they were gonna make it about the Beatles yeah. mostly. And that that's okay. I accept that. Like I said, it's a cross that we we bear relatively happily with equanimity. And you know, I, I said it on an episode of something about the Beatles that was released just a couple of days ago. You know, any opportunity for more Beatles is not something that I'm going to turn down. That's, yeah, that, yeah. I mean, there are so many occasions where there'll be a Beatles song where in private, I'm kind of done with it and I won't really be listening to it all that much anymore compared to other Beatles songs. But if I catch it in the wild or on the radio, it's the best song ever and I'm still really happy to, to, uh, to uh, hear it. Yeah. But enough of the uh, general discussion. Let's move on to the important stuff, which is our opinions. So overall, I know this is a very lofty question, considering that we're still in what's probably the first third of this episode. Did you enjoy McCartney 3, 2, 1? 
Absolutely. I loved it. You know, it, it can be difficult sometimes to see the forest for the trees and you want this particular tree moves slightly to the left and that branch to be locked off. And there's a little too much foliage on the floor of this section of the forest. And, you yeah. know, you, you, you can get very wrapped up in that kind of thing, especially um, when we're at a sort of super fan level and you see where things are, are being elided or where missed opportunities might exist. But I say all of that. And at the same time, I recognize I've watched the entire thing through at least three times mm -hmm. and I will continue to do so because I really enjoy it. I love seeing Paul and anyone um, talking about his body of work and Rick Rubin makes it a very good foil for Paul. And so, yeah, it's terrific. Uh, overall, I think it's a, it's a wonderful show and I'm glad it exists. I can only repeat that. I mean... I went in completely cynically, as I did with every Paul McCartney project that's ever existed. And, you know, at the very start, a lot of it's quite familiar. And I was like, oh, OK, let's let's see where this goes. But before you know it, you're already deep into episode four and you are just transfixed by these two masters. And what I loved about Rick Rubin in the show was he was a perfect surrogate for the audience here. Like he yeah. said, he said things to Paul that I feel like no, no one really says to him all that often. And mm. uh, it makes Paul quite coy and uh, embarrassed in places, which was fantastic tele uh, television. Like when uh, Rubin's like the base to something's like the best thing he's ever heard. Like Paul's really taken aback, but it's like, oh, oh, thank you. Yeah, I guess, I guess it's all right, you know. Yeah, Paul is naturally self-deprecating. Yes. So when, when he gets a question like, how does this exist? He doesn't <laughs> that was very uh, American. That was, and the thing Paul was a bit like, whoa, yeah. Uh, <laughs> because I made the fucking record. I yeah. can see like his head is the answer. <laughs> yeah. No, um, Paul, it, Paul is not able to give those kind of uh, trippy stoner answers that I feel like some of the, questions Ruben was lead was le leading towards those kind of like you know dude like it's all just like in the ether you know like answers like that and Paul does give very practical earnest workman-like answers for how he creates songs and I think I, I think that was more re like revelatory than anything like spiritual saying like you know songs come from the soul and that kind of thing you know yeah. the, the closest we get to that is the the dream stuff with we, we there yesterday but just little tips we get throughout the show made me feel like it's a kind of like a, a side class for Lipper. You know, just, just things like, make sure your song has an ending. Like, it sounds so flippant and trite, but great, great bit of advice. And then obviously that leads him into doing, which is, yeah, uh, <laughs> probably the musical highlight of the show for me. Um, have you heard of the expert blind spot effect? The expert blind is 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 that like when 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 someone becomes an expert in something they actually become rubbish at it or well like it's yeah. more the case that you know if you're preternaturally good at something or you've honed your skills to such a high level it can sometimes be almost impossible for you to explain to a beginner how to go about doing that thing. Mm -hmm. So it, basically, it means sometimes experts make the worst teachers. And when I watch Paul talking about how to compose a song on the piano and he's just kind of 
he's playing these triads with his right hand and he's moving his left hand up. I thought that was interesting because the burden of the melody seems to be carried by the left hand, which is sort of counterintuitive to most right-handed musicians or, or composers, but it's very Paul because he's left-handed. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I thought I can do that on a piano, Paul, and I can't write, let it be. So this in no way helps me sit down and write a genius song. Yeah, um, oh, and by the way, you're also going to have these amazing one-of-a-kind life experiences that give you inspiration. But uh, uh, anyway, back to the class. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't feel like I've I've come any closer to becoming the untapped genius songwriter that I, I know is buried deep inside of me if I just find it. But yeah, I do think I actually learned many stories in this that I hadn't heard, which I was very happy with. And I'll, I'll get into that when we go through the, epi the episode list later. Though, let's get some more uh, important things out of the way just to quell people's worries. Was Paul represented well in this? That this wasn't a stitch-up job? He doesn't look uncool or cringy at any point, does he? No, I don't think so. No, I, it, neither is it particularly, uh, you know, a, um, a puff piece or anything. They're, they're not seeking to, to simply... We're not worthy, we're not worthy mm -hmm. for, for, for three hours straight. Maybe the best way I can talk about it is in terms of the difference between most of the show, which exists in a sort of grainy black and white, mm -hmm. and then the flashback episodes, which appear in vivid color. I thought that was really interesting. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that, you know, the, the, the paradigm that usually exists in film or TV is that the talking head sections of a documentary are in high definition, mm. you know, vivid color. And then when you go back in time, it's grainy, shaky black and white footage. And this flips that on its head in a really clever way. And that, I think to me, that's suggestive of the fact that Paul, during the 1960s and the early 70s, is going through his most vivid and vibrant period of life. And somehow that period is more of a real version of reality mm -hmm. than what we're currently living through, especially in a, in a pandemic world. Um, maybe if you want a, a slightly less academic way of putting it, the 60s footage is like the all syrup squishy to the very diluted version that you get when it's Paul and Rick Rubin talking as aged men. Um, it's so thick. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You, you know, um, have, you, have you read many years from now? Uh, you, you know what? It's funny you should bring up many years from now when, because uh, because you you were mentioning Paul being both revealing and obs obscuring because yeah. you know that's a whole book where it's like yeah I did heroin good luck if you can find the quote in the book motherfucker you know it's it, it's one of them and I've definitely read it in bits I think reading it as an adult with my thinking cap on I'm about halfway through it at the moment sure yeah. sure um I certainly recommend it to listeners. But many years from now opens with a quote from Paul, which is, I feel like the 60s is about to happen. I feel it feels like a period in the future to me rather than a period in the past. And I think that is really, really key to how, how vivid his memories of the period are mm. and how that's represented in this show by those flashback episodes being in color where the rest of it is in black and white. And that's all a kind of roundabout way of answering your question about how it serves Paul. I think it serves Paul by representing his lived experience of 60 years or plus of life. 
it's so morbid to to uh, consider, but Paul really is the best ambassador to still be here to represent the Beatles in that kind of way. Because, you know, it feels like Paul was the only guy in the 60s going, remember all of this, you know, like I've really got to, I'm going to be dining out on these stories for the next 50 years, you know? Yeah, Whereas right. it, if it was John or George as the ambassador now, <laughs> they 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 might still have those negative feelings and there might not be the Beatle empire that exists today that Paul is the stalwart um, spearhead of, you know? Yeah, and if you ask Ringo, he'd either say, ah, I was learning to play chess or, you know, I was too stoned to remember or which album was that on? Yes. <laughs> Did we do Snookaroo on Rubber Soul? No, Ringo, no, you need no. Oh, come on, bro. So let's go back to uh, Harry Rick, though. Uh, number one, he is a fantastic bopper. He he gives fantastic eye reactions. Like he got. There's one shot in particular where they get really close on his fa- his bug eyed face, and he it goes like almost Steve Buscemi esque. Like yeah. he is so wide eyed and agog at Paul and that was very humanizing it's like yeah this is the guy that set up Def Jam Records uh, a titan of the 80s 90s and 2000s 2010s and he's just like flawed by Paul McCartney as as this god had you known much about Rubin in the past or is he just one of those names no no, not not really Um, I'd heard the name and I was vaguely aware of him as, as someone on the production side of music but like you, I was transfixed enough by his hair to, to then go searching through Google to see if this is a recent development and there's like clean <laughs> versions of Rick Rubin in the 1980s. So no, he's always looked like that. <laughs> no, he, no, he's always been a kind of hobo Santa kind of a yeah. vibe. Yeah. He does, he does look like someone that walked into the Beatles studio one, one day and said he was Jesus. Absolutely. Just for anyone who wants a bit of, a bit of context, especially if you're part of my mostly greying, aging audience, Rick Rubin is a record producer, and he did albums such as The Red Hot Chili Peppers, Californication, Metallica's Death Magnetic, two albums that I've actually heard and listened to, folks, so that's pretty shocking. The Johnny Cash Revival album, uh, American Recordings, uh, Sheryl Crow's Globe Sessions, a massive album. He did three albums for System of a Down, Mick Jagger... Kanye West, Weezer, Lady Gaga, Tom Petty, ZZ Top. And that's even before you go back to the 80s and 90s where he created Def Jam, like I say. But I think it's important, and I mentioned this earlier, that you needed someone who was also a titan to go up against Paul here. Like, you know, you could have had Mark Ronson or Greg Kirsten in there, but they just haven't had the decades of success that Paul, like, you know, Paul's probably had two more still on Rick, but, you know, at least I've got someone in there who's had 40 years of being relatively on the top, who can at least attempt to approach Paul on his level. And I, th- I thought I thought that was quite astute. Though it doesn't seem like Rubin's been hired. It's He's the executive producer, so it seems yeah. like he's, uh, he's definitely manoeuvred this. He hasn't been able to produce a McCartney album, but he's been able to produce a McCartney TV show, close second. Rick Rubin, the the new manoeuvring swine, for those who know their deep Beatles references. Yes, uh, as as much as McCartney too is a deep a deep cut album. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, um, 
I could I could definitely see uh, Rick Rubin producing the next Paul McCartney album in the way that obviously we, we we had the Idris Elba interview and then that led to the Idris Elba remix on Three Imagined. We've also got a director here. I had no idea who he was. Uh, yeah, hang on. His name is Zachary Heinzerling, and the only thing I know he did was uh, the Beyonce five-part web series. So he's kind of a guy who's known for doing, you know, streaming versions of uh, authorial author interviews. But we've also got another one of these producers called Jerry Pollock, and he uh, produced the All or Nothing Frank Sinatra film. And he gave this quote where he says, we didn't need another Beatles doc. We didn't need another touring Beatlemania doc. We didn't want to explore the stories that people knew so well. I think he failed that objective, definitely. But you, this is something you uh, you touched on earlier as well. The filmic language and the presentation of this series uh, was striking. I was I was very pleased with how it looked. But it's interesting, like you say, no talking heads really. There's no one just talking to the camera like The Office. There's no voiceover except for the conversation between them just being played over stock footage. And we do get occasional stock footage, not always the Beatles, which I thought was a nice a nice break. Yeah. Uh, and, and sometimes they even have weird remixes of the songs that I feel like are exclusive to McCartney 321, where they take the vocal off the songs Mm. so they can talk over it like there's a version of band on the run on mccartney 321 where it's basically just the instrumental track the whole way through except for the beginning and end because they are talking over the entirety of the song and i feel like that's something that has been really slept on yeah yeah and i like the the little bits and bobs you hear when all of the faders are up mm. like it sounds like paul and denny just sort of working their way into a vocal performance by saying I sit and watch the children play. <laughs> that was one of the most entertaining moments for me. Did you not feel like that there's thousands of sounds buried in Paul McCartney songs that we're never going to hear because we don't get to sit next to Paul going, you know, like I heard acoustic guitar lines on Band on the Run that I had never heard before. I was like, oh, well... That's not a part of the song. That's just another one of Paul's counter melodies that he can seemingly write off the top of his head effortlessly. Oh, that, isn't that amazing? Like that moment where they take down everything in um, While My Guitar Gently Weeps, except the bass and drums, and off the top of his head, Paul improvises a new and completely different song. You know what it reminds me of? Do you know this you know the story of um, Paul Simon playing the backing tracks to um, the Graceland album to Paul McCartney. And Have I told you? No. Before? So another friend of mine has told me this and he couldn't find the source for this. So I'm going to be, I really hope you know where this story comes from. And apparently uh, well, uh, I, I read it in, um, in a relatively recent biography of Paul Simon. I don't know where his uh, source okay. is. It's interesting. But yeah, isn't it the story that he's playing Paul all these demos and Paul is just off the top of his head for every single song, able just to do a, a completely harmonic counter melody, just literally um, exactly. auto-generated. And, like and, and it's, it's revealing of Paul Simon's own competitive streak that his response was, 
Paul came up with incredibly good melodies for my songs off the top of his head. Now, I wrote better ones, but they took <laughs> five years to write. <laughs> uh, um, I think it's uh, I think it was Paul Simon when he when he won the best album for Graceland. The first thing he did was thank Stevie Wonder for not releasing an album that year. Oh, dear me. Yeah, it seems like it seems like Paul Simon might actually be quite a competitive guy, which is uh, not a bad thing at all, especially if you have to keep up with McCartney. I mean, ha- I mean, how do you even have the cojones to show Paul McCartney your demos? Like that's bearing your soul. Because if he just goes, oh, I didn't really like number number four, like you you just have to go away for a year, wouldn't you? And just <laughs> well, or in his case, another five. But yeah, yeah. What do you think of the space that they filmed in then, b- besides the uh, floating chairs? Would, would, would you have put, you know, did you want shots of them uh, at George's mansion, sat cross-legged in the park playing the ukulele? No, look, uh, I, I didn't have strong feelings about the space there. And it looks sort of cavernous, like they're in the middle of a barn, which is very dimly lit. And, and the barn itself looks sort of faux Tudor or something. So, you know, there, yeah. there's... There's a slightly quizzical response from me at, at times to to the, the way it looks, but not so much that I felt it was weird or distracted from what they were talking about. Yeah, in, in one of the articles, it's described as a hastily assembled soundstage near McCartney's Hampton House and it, when it was shot in August of 2020. Paul is looking very grand dude era in this you you know those shots those promotional images for McCartney 3 where he's got the silver hair and that kind of green jacket where he's yeah. holding he, he looks like he's literally just walked off that set he totally in, does in in into here what do you think about this being streaming you know Paul is obviously in the pockets of Spotify now he's pushing that front he's doing new playlists on streaming services every week He's got visualizer YouTube videos for the entire new album out for free, you know, for the entire thing. He's releasing albums on streaming months now before that physical release of an album. And now he's on Hulu and Disney Plus. Thoughts? <laughs> I like them. I, I, I suppose I'm, I'm young enough to have embraced streaming as the norm. Mm-hmm. Uh, musical and you know film and TV content. I don't watch terrestrial TV anymore, and I very very rarely put a disc into a player. So I'm I'm pleased. Um, yeah, I, I don't mourn the loss of something that can sit on a shelf. At least in the case of McCartney Three Two One, where I would have paid for it, but only because the time lag between when things are available in the US and Europe and when they arrive in Australia is so great that I would have been forced to buy a bunch of Blu-rays or to get it through nefarious means. Oh, I mean, I put on my Twitter, like, does anyone know where I can access McCartney 3321 here in the UK? And this was before it was announced to uh, be released on Disney+. Plus. Allegedly, supposedly, I got at least five emails of DVD rips within an hour. Like, 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 like it, this. This is like when the McCartney Three leaks were released, and everyone was like, "There's, there's, there's a leak for McCartney Three. I I've not heard. I've heard anything about this." And everyone, everyone played dumb. Everyone had the file. <laughs> it's a little bit off topic, but I think my general feeling about this stuff is that I don't like the way 
a line is drawn between those who are law-abiding citizens who, who pay for all of their content and those who are evil pirates and thieves who steal everything. Because I would wager that those who have the greatest collection of MP4 or AVI files on their computers also have the biggest collections of DVD and Blu-rays on their shelves. So the, the two things go hand in hand with each other. And yeah, you, you can't just lump people into two categories. Sorry, I'm go I'm jumping no, on a bit no, of no. I, I totally get that. And there is an element that I'm fortunate in the sense that Disney Plus just happens to be one of those several streaming services that I happened to already have. I mean, we we discussed this when we were talking about the uh, new Peter Jackson documentary that's coming out. Ha ha, it's coming to our streaming platform. You know, great. That's a lovely little coincidence. But is it fair that the McCartney fans on Netflix and on Amazon Prime and on, you know, whatever platform they're on can't access this? Yeah, it's not particularly fair. And I do feel like there does need to be a physical release at some point. But as we've seen with Disney+, Plus, there is no physical release for any of their Marvel shows. There's no physical release for two seasons of their Star Wars show now. And the monopoly on content seems to be now in not having a physical release. And we might only get a 321 in a McCartney 3 archive collection in a few years. That's the only time I could actually see it coming out, which is a shame, really, because I do want to give Paul my money, or in this case, a lot of your people's money. But, you know, I do want to buy all this product and... You know, are you are you telling me some very very talented graphic artists couldn't design a very nice box for McCartney three two one? It would be it would be quite thick and it would open out in an unnecessary amount of folds with too many discs and it would have art cards and postcards. Come on, you can charge fifty quid for this. That's right. Like I said earlier, if anyone from MPL is listening, please put McCartney three two one into an Uber Deluxe box with all of the three McCartney albums and a copy of Japanese Jailbird for us to read as well. <laughs> no, um, my, my guest on Mac It In Your Attic last night, Nicholas Leroy, who is the creator of the Paul McCartney Project. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. yeah that oh, man. Like, no, no, no. Speaking to him was like speaking to the, uh, the Wikipedia version of Paul. Like, it was, it, wow. it was insane. But he showed me this New World Tour box set and it came with a copy of Off the Ground, a new second CD print of Unplugged, which was quite rare at the time because it was, it was a limited run. And it also came with a copy of Wings Greatest. That's weird. <laughs> what, a, what a box set. What yeah. a box set. I mean, so imagine that you'd get Egypt Station, you'd get the Grand Central Station gig, you'd get that live as well. And then <laughs> all the best. <laughs> <laughs> you know, do you know All the Best is one of his biggest selling albums? I can't remember the website, but there's a site which gives you statistics of Paul McCartney's album sales for his career. And All the Best is something like seven plus million copies sold. It's probably one of one of those ones that wasn't number one, but kept at number 13 for yeah. seven years. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's got more copies sold than Wings Greatest and certainly more than Wingspan. Was Wingspan not 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 that massive then? Was that during that lull just before McCartney Physical Media took back off again? 
Yeah, I think so. It's in that sort of the, the early years of the 21st century. Yeah, back when the archive releases were kind of wank and uh, yeah. the best you get for an archive of a live album is, oh, we're going to put it in a different coloured vinyl. Oh, well, who cares? One bonus track that you had it already, you know. Yeah. Are we even going to discuss why the incomplete version of Chobber is on Spotify? Why did, Why is that a thing? That is ridiculous. Just put, just click up, someone at MPL, an intern, click a button, just go drag and drop. I know you've got the files. Just drag and drop, put it on Spotify. Anyway, also something I feel should be addressed with this. And yes, there is another 11 hours of content that could be mined for this show. But this is something that, you know, has to be asked if you're talking about a series rather than just a film. Do you feel like there was enough material here to warrant a full six-episode series? Could this have been ten episodes long? Should this have been three? No, I think I think they they had it on the money for the general viewer. Mm-hmm. I would have happily watched twenty episodes, and I would have wanted them to slowly move away from the Beatles and start to get into more of Paul's 80s, 90s, and noughties work. God, I would have loved to see them talking about some of the chaos or memory almost full tracks. Rick Rubin bopping away to Pretty Little Head. Why does yeah. this exist? You can't, <laughs> you can't keep asking me that, Rick. You know, it's a, there has to be some specifics. There were, so I wrote that song entirely by, by myself. There was no one else helped me on that album. <laughs> Oh, that'd be funny if you if if you said that on a on a flowers of the dirt as well. Just like completely dropping people from history. I, I do love the way that when you do your Paul impression, it's always accompanied yeah. with the nose. No, 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 no. That's part, like I'm sure Daniel Day Lewis has to you know put on the costume to help him be Daniel Plainview, and that for me is part of my costume. <laughs> do you think this show is meant to be? watch in installments like should should people watch this on a friday night and then go and talk about it in the water cooler next monday or is this like you and me probably did and like everyone else probably did binged in one single sitting with some clotted cream ice cream (laughs) yeah i binged it in one sitting and then i went back and i i watched it more episodically over a greater period of time i think i liked it more the second time around I don't know, something about a little bit of breathing room between episodes mm. uh, led to a more reflective appreciation of what they were doing in the show. And the episodes sort of bled into each other in that way that made them seem like there wasn't a lot differentiating them thematically from each other mm. when you just sat and watched them in one glut. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, you know what? Let's 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 just talk about them. Let's go right into episode one, and yeah. we'll just touch on any moments that catch our eye. We open on the two of them sort of over the controls, listening to "All My Loving." Then Rick asks Paul if anyone in his family played music. You you knew this was a lie on Rick Rubin's part that he didn't already know the answer to that question. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. Um, it, it's a comment that that isn't originally mine. It's it's something that Diana Erickson said to me, but I agree with her. So I hope she doesn't mind me saying. Why does Paul talk about his father's amateurish musical leanings 
in such a way, in such a downbeat way? Why does he play them down? This is a guy who was a band leader, who was a professional mm. musician. They were paid, they were popular. He wrote a lot of his own music. So, so why does Paul always seem to characterize it like it was just a group of friends sitting around the piano at family mm. occasions? It was a lot more than that. And, and part of me would like him to acknowledge that. Yeah, maybe he just feels like since he made money from it and his dad never did, possibly in that way. But, you know, that, yeah. that is so true. He was a band leader. And that's not just like sitting in the back playing the triangle. That's, that is organisation. There's a, there's a certain live production element to it as well. You know what? I've never even considered that. I'm going to have to ruminate on that one a little bit. Maybe there's just a bit of uh, son beats dad, psych, you know, psychology there. Uh, I, yeah. I beat you, I overthrow you. Yeah, he does it, he does it to other things as well. Like he, he's gotten into this pattern of talking about the tragic circumstances of um, John's mother's death, of Julia's death, in a way that weirdly fails to acknowledge that almost the same thing happened to him two years earlier. He always, I don't deny that, that his family life with his father and his brother and his aunts and his uncles was a close knit and a supportive and a warm one. But I also want to say, Paul, there's nothing wrong with saying your mother also died in circumstances which must have affected you quite deeply. To me, that just screams of, in his life, he has mentioned that. And then people have just immediately said, oh, like John. And he's just yeah. going, oh, why, why am I even talking about this? Because, you know, John's got that angle, I guess. Yeah. You know, because with the Beatles, you can't have two of them with any similar traits at all. One of them has to be bumbling and one of them has to be quiet. Uh, <laughs> you know, because those, those are the boxes we have for them. Then we get the story of Paul talking about the early days, getting different chords, uh, you know, getting the bus across Liverpool. We get to the turtleneck sweaters and trying to act French story. So obviously that's going to lead into Michelle. Um, I never knew it contained a reference to Edith Path, though. I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah, Milord, that was a revelation to me too. Although it got me thinking about the song itself. And, you know, maybe I'm thinking too much about the logic of the lyrics. Are you going into a My my Sweet Lord uh, reference or? (laughs) Well, no, it's just that I don't understand how someone could not know the French for I love you, je t'aime, but is still able to say, sans des qui vont très bien ensemble, which is a much harder phrase to know in French. No, oh, well, well, he got he, he got someone's uh, someone to help with the French, didn't he? Um, yes, he did. The logic of it always like, it's just one of those slightly irritating things. I, I have this this inner pedant when it comes to lyrics, like you know the Robert Palmer song that goes, "Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I've got a bad case of loving you." For a long time, I thought, why does he go to a doctor? Doctor for the news. Yeah, <laughs> imploring him for a diagnosis and then proceed to diagnose himself before the doctor say anything. No, um, the big poor one is still, I think, to this day, the world in which we live in. I think, I, oh, I think, yeah. I think all 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 English English teachers put a red pen next next <laughs> next to that one. Um, yeah, the, the only example, really, though, of of a lyric where I wish I could go back in time and make a suggestion to Paul is um, the song, I'll Give You a Ring. And I love the song. I just think he missed an opportunity 
because in the last verse of that song, it's all about how the relationship has evolved in mm. commitment, seriousness. And they're now in a church, presumably getting married. And yet he still sings when he gets to the end of the verse, give me your number and I'll give you a ring. And it, no, Paul, just for the final verse. Oh, I gave you my number. Finger oh. oh, my God. That's, oh, my gosh. Never even thought of that. Yeah. That's just a wonderful play on words right at the end of the song. It would have made it perfect. But that's the only time I, I ever really wanted to, to tell Paul McCartney how to write a song. No, but Paul has a bad habit of, you know, final verse, copy and paste the first verse, let's go yeah. home for lunch kind of kind of thing. <laughs> and, you know, his commitment to, you can't mess with the magic of that, of that one take and not, and not just proofreading something. <laughs> Next, we cut to a story of Salt and Pepper. Obviously, that goes into Sergeant Pepper. Then it actually cuts to a bit that I thought was just perfect television. The moment he puts Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band on, Paul physically has to get up. He has to get up and start dancing to this song. And that, yeah. that, that was adorable. That goes into With a Little Help from My Friends. And of course, Duncan, this is the part of the documentary where I'm not going to say. There's a controversial element, but it's an element I was looking forward to discussing with you at least. Sure. This is the part where Paul does his uh, Hendrix story, and you know you are g- going to be aware of that story as well. I imagine it's one of the classic McCartney ones. However, in the news recently, the original promoter of his first UK tour has basically just come out right out and said. Yeah, Paul wasn't there. I don't remember him being there at all. Here we go. Oh, wow. Okay. Here we go. It was unusual, even on a Monday night, to have virtually no one there who was famous, except for one person who claimed he was and who has dined out on it for the past 50 years, Mr. Paul McCartney. (laughs) Apparently, this is all absolute hogwash. If so, then they're really going to have to reprint an awful lot of books because this is in every single Beatle publication that exists, right? That is fascinating, isn't it? I'm sure that there would be ways that someone of, you know, Mark Lewison's scrupulousness could fact check exactly whether the Bag of Nails Club was open. If it was, it was the Bag of Nails we're talking about, wasn't it? Or was it the, the Savile Theatre, the one that Brian Epstein owned? It's I definitely one of those two. <laughs> one of those two. That someone could figure out if it was open on that that particular occasion, and someone I'm sure could pull a set list. I mean, I suppose it's it's conceivable that McCartney was there incognito. He did certainly know how to disguise himself and had been doing it the year previously, maybe with his pepper moustache. Yeah. He just didn't get recognised. That's a, a very good way of looking at it, actually. I'm just picturing him and, like, Linda in those kind of, like, New Orleans clown outfits, you know, just kind of like... <laughs> Hi, Paul. Yeah, yeah, that's that's Paul. You can spot him a mile off. But I was I was a little bit upset to hear about this one because, like, you know, it's just such a classic, iconic Beatles image and story. It'd be like someone coming out and going, "Yeah, no, uh, Paul spent a lot of conscious hours writing yesterday. I was there. I was there. You know, I uh, deliver bacon to the Ashes House." And and I could hear Paul composing that one every single day. It would it would, it would just break everything down, wouldn't it? Well, actually, I mean, seeing as you brought it up, I think that it's probably true. Paul did spend many conscious hours composing yesterday, because at least the way he tells the story, 
it was the tune alone that that came fully formed into his head when he woke up, and it had to exist on the the, the um the dummy lyric diet of scrambled eggs yeah. until until he was consciously writing the lyrics to it. I think in in some sort of English um, colonial outpost somewhere in the Mediterranean, <laughs> where where people were allowed to go on holiday. People like Peter Ustinov went there and recommended it to to Paul, and, and I think it was on the drive from the airport to this holiday location that um, he finalized the lyrics to Yesterday, at least if the stories told in many years from now can be believed. At least Ringo didn't have to come in to come in the studio and stop Paul from putting, you know, scrambled eggs, you cunt, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Paul, that's enough of that. No, that's enough of that. <laughs> this time you've gone too far. This time you've gone too far. And my friends in Sodor on the, <laughs> will not be happy with this one, Paul. <laughs> Cut to me and George Harrison on the bus, the rice pudding in the can and, and hitchhiking, all classic stories. Mm-hmm. We get a little impromptu performance of Thinking of Lincoln, which I'm sure for non-deep divers, that, that actually would be a, a, a nice little surprise for someone. It's, it's, yeah. um, isn't that, is it in the anthology series? It's in the extras. Oh, okay. Them. All in in this in this sort of prefab building on Friar Park, doing an impromptu performance of Thinking of Linking. It always makes me want to say, "Okay, now play Pinwheel Twist." That's the one that real <laughs> fans want to know how what it sounds like. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> play Cry for a Shadow. Yeah. <laughs> Cut to while my guitar gently weeps. We get uh, Clapton in the studio. I thought it was interesting uh, how Paul talks about George being open enough to give someone the big solo for that song, which is something I've never even considered. Like, you know, the narrative is, George wants someone in the studio to make everyone behave themselves, but no one ever says, also, he's really brave because that's the big guitar moment of the album. Uh, mm. you, know, <laughs> you know, the the big drum moment of the album is also not done by the drummer as well. So that's, that's uh, another interesting little uh, connection with the White Album. Then Paul makes the George is a late bloomer comment. Again, again, Duncan, why does he keep saying this? I took him to task a little bit on the One Sweet Dream Facebook page about that. (laughs) Um, I said, the guy who had written, let's say, um, within you, without you, Mm -hmm. at the age of 24, I would not call him a late developer. (laughs) Only in comparison to Lennon and McCartney is he a late developer by anyone else's standard. <laughs> 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 in terms of the age he was, yeah. and in terms of his growth over a period of years, George Harrison is not a late developer. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> no, um, I feel like if you were to ask Paul during the the 444 split era. What songs has George written before Abbey Road? Um, I think he did something called Don't Bother Me. It was about it. Like, no, no, Paul, he did quite a lot, actually. I've got a sneaking suspicion, like, Paul just doesn't give a shit about songs like If I Needed Someone or, mm-hmm. I, or I Need You. You know, though, you know, that was just early album filler, wasn't it? Actually, Paul, some people love that stuff. Um, yeah. Got under my skin as well. Uh, then we go to one of my favourite 
bits of the series and this is a very common reoccurrence and every time it happened I felt like I needed to take a shot because uh, it just happens every episode which is Rick Rubin turns the faders down on everything but the bass and we, oh, and we yeah. just focus on Paul's bass yeah. um, and I, I, it's nice to see Paul almost have to rationalise his own decision making process live like you actually see him thinking of answers a, a couple of times here um, mm. and it it's almost like he what he never considered how heavy and contrasting the bass line is in while my guitar Jenny Weeps was has he never thought this out loud? Yeah, um, throughout the series, I mean, the, later on there seems to be an episode. I think it's called "Could You Play It Straighter" or something like that. That um, that one is more sort of focused on his bass playing. But I'll I'll make the point now. I think he's slightly disingenuous when he gives the impression all of his bass parts were just this organic, spontaneous thing that came through the feel of how synergized he was with Ringo and, and the other members of the band on yeah, the day. Isn't the truth like the exact opposite? Like they'd get the basic track down in the studio and then Paul takes the song away and then sits at home like a nerd going boom, 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 boom. Exactly. Yeah, I mean... I, there probably were a lot of bass parts to Beatles tracks that then got wiped when Paul added his final bass part as the cherry on top of every single track after the period of listening to every single element of the mm -hmm. song. So it's a very considered bass part in almost every instance, especially after around 66. Maybe it's because the final memories are on songs like Come Together, where that probably did literally happen in the studio. And then you got the whole let it be, get back period. Everything literally was written in the studio there. So maybe yeah. there's a bit of end of era confirmation bias there. Mm. Yeah, it could be, it could be. And then you've also got the the fact that in the early days, so much, so much of the stuff was... You know, just do 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 do. Oh, you wrote that in the studio. Wow, well done, well done. And then we end on a reggae influenced comment, which obviously leads to obladi obada. Second episode, we open on the string section from something, which is always nice to hear. Obviously, we've heard that on the Abbey Road box set recently. We get the Paul can't read music spiel. Then we get a bit of one hand clapping jazz cabaret out of nowhere, which I really enjoyed. Um, and then Paul gives us another lipper songwriting lesson just on how to write a piano <laughs> song. Like, so you got a chord like that. And then down here you got another chord. Down here you got another chord. I'm like, oh my God, I'm learning so much about piano right now. I'm, I'm going to write a rock. I'm going to write a rock song now. Um, yeah, it, it, it's dangerously close to. You just have a fiddle about on the piano until you've written Maybe I'm Amazed. Yeah, yeah, because like, he does it about five times throughout the season. He'll, like, he'll just play a note and go, and just like that, you kind of go into, let it be. It's like, no, you don't just, you don't just go into it like that. You just do that. Yeah, and then you just become a genius like that. Uh, <laughs> again, he, he he he's got this cognitive dissonance where he's unable to recognize his own genius. Like mm -hmm. in in the way that if you were to stare at like an ancient eldritch Cthulhu like horror from a what um from one of um what's his name not not H.R. Geiger um oh no what's oh poo I'm gonna cut this out uh 
Cthulhu Mythos. Who 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 wrote? Oh my god, it's really good. He's, he, Sorry, I, I can't help. H. One of, those, you're one of those HP Lovecraft monsters. Yeah. Like if you know, if you were to look at one of them, you were driven mad. And I think that's the same with Paul's genius. If it was to acknowledge how insanely talented he is, he might just burn out because it's not it's not real. And for him to be that not real thing would, would be too much to deal with. Um, no, I think you're quite right. Then we get quite a lot of footage of the Michael Lindsay Hogg version of Let It Be, which I thought was quite weird considering Peter Jackson's film's coming out soon. So yeah. I kind of got the impression that maybe we're not going to get that shot in the upcoming documentary. Well, it's going to be a series of films now, but um, we then go back maybe. to... Maybe. Oh, no. Oh, sorry. No, no, no. Sorry. Yeah. I'm just... I'm just, you know, considering what you're saying. It is, it is odd that we have Peter Jackson's been working on this immaculately restored version that we've seen a, a wonderful glimpse of, and yet when footage from that era is shown in <laughs> stuff as recent as three, two, one, it's clearly the old grainy version. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I mean, maybe if you use updated footage, Lindsay Hogg doesn't get a piece of the pie. You know, maybe. Uh, <laughs> Then we go back to the piano, talks about the Beatles liking Bach and how they should add a drum beat to Bach. And I'm like, isn't that literally what people did to Beethoven in the 70s with like a fifth of Beethoven and Night on well, Disco they, Mountain? They you know? Bach in 1967, that's Prokhor Haram's Whiter Shade of Pale. It's, oh, it's yeah. a Bach piece with a drum beat to it. And interestingly, that's the piece that was playing the night Paul met Linda. Wheels within wheels, man. This is yeah. this, this is getting ridiculous. Um, Paul does the chord thing again. He goes, oh, this this chord. And then you go into Eleanor Rigby. Um, I like how he talks about how it's an evolution of what they did with yesterday. I know I had heard that story before, but I thought he told it quite eloquently and quite uh, briefly here. Um, yeah. I also like the nonverbal keyboard demo. That he played, like that, like he could remember the demo he did for George Martin, where he's going, do 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 do. Yeah. do. Obviously, as we've said here on the show with you on before, Paul McCartney's non-verbalizations are some of his best work. That in particular. <laughs> um, then we cut to a discussion of Penny Lane. We get the piccolo trumpet story. Oh, uh, can, I, can I can I say something about this? This was one of my bugbears, one of my frustrations. Are you now also going to reveal you're a, you're a grade ten piccolo trumpet player as well? No, I'm not. But I am going to read to you from my copy of many years from now. Are you ready? Oh no! <laughs> Paul hummed the melody that he wanted the French horn to play, and George Martin wrote out the score. When it was finished, George pointed out that Paul, to Paul that the high note went just beyond the top of the horn's range and showed him the reference book used for orchestral writing, which showed the top notes of orchestral instruments. George Martin said, but you know, these four players, they can play about the range. Paul said, let's try them. And then it cuts to a quote from Paul. George was in for the crack. He likes that. He said, it'll work, it'll work. On the session, Alan Civil said, George, and he looked at his book, he said, George, you've written the D. And George and I just looked at him and held on Irvin said, yes. And he gave us a crafty look and went, okay. Now that is not a story about the piccolo trumpet part on Penny Lane. It's a story about the French horn part on For No One. So it's true that Paul then repeated the trick when they got oh um, to come in and play 
on Penny Lane, but he tells the story in a way that suggests that this was all sort of come up with on the spot. And maybe that's just a better way to tell a story. But, you know, for, for people like me, who, who obsess about these things, you do want to try to go, actually, Paul, it's the second time you did that. Oh, uh, no, but like, I can just imagine Paul going, so uh, we, we were recording Let It Be in Lagos, and me and Ringo were walking back, and we had the demos for Let It Be, and uh, Ringo was like, don't, don't kill him, he's a, he's a musician, you know. Uh, <laughs> every, every, everything just starts blurring in the... Uh, in the uh, latter years, we we recorded Sergeant Pepper in twelve hours in just two sessions. You know, uh, <laughs> I love that joke, and it, it's the one that I always remember from the Ruttles, where Eric Idle, as the the commentator, says their first album was recorded in twenty minutes. The second took even longer. No, you said living in hope earlier, and in my head, whilst, whilst you were talking, I think for the next 20 seconds, I was just going, living in hope, I'm living in hope. Living in hope. Yeah, uh, Barry Wom, the best, the best parody name probably ever. <laughs> um, uh, after that, uh, Paul starts talking about pushing other engineers to their limits. We get uh, Paul talking about adding piano bass notes to... Uh, bass guitar notes which I thought was a very interesting little uh, tidbit but then he plays one of those bass notes on the piano which forces him to go into Lady Madonna mm. and as if to antagonize me he spends about a minute talking about the vocal for Lady Madonna and he, Lady he, Madonna. not doing the women and wives version of Lady Madonna Paul you you're like ah, oh, you I'm gonna say this folks he cannot sing that song anymore he cannot sing that one. That is one that is beyond his capabilities now. Uh, you know, he doesn't do Long Tall Sally anymore, but he still attempts Lady Madonna. And I felt like Rubin had heard my podcast and, you know, he was specifically trying to antagonise me with that cut there. Um, then finally, episode two, halfway through, we get some solo stuff. We get Band on the Run, a proper deep cut from his uh, back catalogue. And this is where we get those mixed little acoustic guitars buried. Um, we also get the isolated bass track. Um, and we also get the, the uh, vocalist uh, version of the song while they're talking as well, which is pretty cool. We get the Fella Cootie stuff. As you say, Paul does the riff from when he met Fella Cootie, which is just incredible. Um, he also mentions how it, it, it made him cry, which I thought was quite nice as well. Then... Turn the light on for the sake of the Patreon. No, 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 no worries. I'm just gonna. How we all? How we all doing? Pa Patreon people, we all doing good. Everyone staying healthy. I hope we're all double vaxxed. There we go. There we are. I was just telling my, my audience that I hope they're all double vaxxed. There we are. I, I am now double vaxxed, which is a rare thing. I'm I'm part of the Pfizer elite in Australia. Um, very few people have been eligible for the Pfizer vaccine. Um, but, you know, it's it's starting to to turn the corner, I hope. Oh, wow, we're vaccine buddies. I got the Pfizer one as well. Uh, Did you have any adverse reactions? No, I'm fine. I'm, I'm, I'm fine, <laughs> man, I'm fine. Uh, no, uh, I, I mean, ever since I had it, I've just become obsessed with Paul McCartney. So it's a, it's a, it's a weird side effect, but, uh, you know, it, yeah. it's very... It's, very congruous for my lifestyle i guess um then we get some waterfalls action and i must admit at this point i was very excited i was so happy to see that, that they were going to touch on this era at the time though i didn't know that 
they weren't going to go past this. You know, I was like, oh, waterfalls, they're probably going to, you know, do maybe like My Brave Fakes or something. But, yeah. you know, we, we never do get that. Um, the lack of the modesty in the statement when he calls it a pretty little song, though, I thought, like, come on, Paul. Even though you think this is low in your calibre, like, this is still an amazing track. And yeah, the fact that Rubin took the time to say, no, no, Paul, this is really modern, this is really ahead of its time, and you should like this song more. That was a great 30 seconds of television again. It really was. Yeah. Um, then we get more piano talk. Uh, and then Paul says that quote uh, from Mozart, I, I write the notes that like each other. And then Blackbird. Episode three, we get some back in the USSR stock footage. Uh, that leads to Paul with uh, doing the best faders thing, which is literally just him bringing one up, yeah, bringing, yeah, yeah. bringing the other down. That could have been a whole episode, just going through different songs with Paul doing the faders. The faders goes up and then they go down and then they go up and then they go down. Isn't this fun? <laughs> Isn't this fun? I'm going for a swim. Yay! Yeah. Um, so then uh, he also mentioned playing drums on Back in the USSR without somehow slagging Ringo off, which I thought was very good. Um, yeah. Then we get... Yeah, because he left the band. I never left the band, except when I left the band. Uh, <laughs> ironic, yeah. Weirdly, it, it's so weird that John that John Lennon was the only person never to leave the Beatles, and yet he spent his entire career trying to leave the Beatles. It's it's like how um, Harrison Ford survived to the end of Star Wars without being killed off before they finally did the remake. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's actually a very astute comment. That That is one of the... the massive ironies of the way people think about the breakup. In some ways, my favorite comment on the Beatles breakup is um, with somebody on Twitter who, who said it played out this way. Paul screams, John screams louder to assert dominance. Ringo, should we do something? George, wait, I want to see how this plays out. Yeah, yeah. That's the Beatles breakup. Oh. Mommy and Daddy, please stop fighting. You're ruining dinner. Yes. No, I mean, people, you know what? And even in this story, no one ever goes, how was Mal Evans feeling at this time? No one gives any attention to Mal here, you know? What was, oh. <laughs> what was, uh, I mean, to be fair, I don't even know what George Martin said during the breakup of the Beatles. I don't even know if there is a quote from him going, well, I think the lads should just, get together and stop all this fighting, you know? Well, they, I remember reading a line from him in 1970. So this is around the Ooh. time of the, the Paul McCartney um, self-interview press release, all of that palaver and the way it was reported. George Martin is quoted as saying, I firmly believe they'll be back together in a studio before the end of the year, which is a hell of a lot different to George Martin saying in the anthology that Abbey Road was a very, very happy album because everyone knew it was going to be the last <laughs> Oh, oh, it's a very good impression of George Martin as well. Uh, even even if it might just be generic posh Englishman, it's very effective. It's very effective. Oh. It's very effective. Oh my gosh! You need to say the lads or the boys though to start off every. So I was with the boys. I was with the lads. Uh, no, it, right. it's all about um, you know uh, Peter Serafinowicz when he does that. Yeah, that. he is wonderful. I love his impressions. Yeah. 
And when you find out he was going to voice Paul in the Yellow Submarine CGI remake, your heart weeps. And then you think to yourself, well, at least no one's released a 10-minute animatic of the lost Yellow Submarine CGI movie. At least no one would release 20 minutes of footage to just break your heart or anything. <laughs> oh, well, I'm glad that movie was never made. Yeah. Oh, no. I, I mean, the moment I saw that the Blue Means were trying to kill the Beatles in the real world at the start. I was like, oh, they've actually like got story structure. Yes, come on, Rod, come on. Uh, and then, and then they, and then Mars needs moms had to lose Disney, so like 114 million dollars. Wow, that's why it didn't get made. <laughs> wow. No, but um, it was gonna, you know, that weird era of weird cgi movies like um christmas carol and uh, um the polar express yeah. i think it was going to originally look like that yeah yeah <laughs> oh i'm glad it, i'm glad it didn't happen to be honest it should be like instead it, instead of disney it should be pixar really handling that someone with a bit more yeah. chops in the cgi realm or i don't know someone like Guillermo del Toro. Can you imagine a sort of a weird, gritty version of Pepperland? Or you could have Studio Ghibli and anime. Yes, uh, Yellow Submarine. That that actually would probably get investment in investors. Um, or even if if you really want to go for it, get like Leica Studios, who did um, you know they did um, Kubo and the Two Strings, uh, mm. that 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 uh, stop motion animated movie. Stop motion yellow, yellow submarine in Play-Doh. Oh, that would be amazing. I'd love that. Yeah, but and it would take it would if you thought the original yellow submarine had a long production, you, <laughs> you ain't seen nothing yet. Uh, we'll get Ardman. Ardman, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cracking, <laughs> cracking submarine grommet. Yeah. Anyway, uh, <laughs> then we get some talk of Paul saying we can't go to America until we get number one. We get meeting little Richard. And then in the way that Scorsese goes on a tangent about John Lennon in Living in the Material World, we, we just get about two minutes of just this interview with uh, little Richard. And I felt like we got the point of him being quite preachy in the first 30 seconds. And I'm like, and we're going to cut back to Paul and Rick now. And we cut back now. And we never do. Uh, and then after about, yeah, like I say, two minutes, we get... Uh, Babies in Black talk, which was another one of the highlights for me. I love that Paul gave a huge shout out for the Everly Brothers here, uh, comparing yeah. his and John's harmonies. Um, it's strange, though, because Paul mentions here that the fans didn't like this song because they couldn't dance to it. It's literally a waltz. Like, what <laughs> What are these people talking about? Yeah, that's how John used to introduce it as well. He said, it's a waltz for everyone over 10 or something like that. You can hear it in one of the anthology recordings. Um, but yeah, that, that does seem to have been a really important song to them. And the Everly Collection is, is an interesting one. One of my favorite, um, very deep Paul McCartney cuts is um, On the Wings of a Nightingale. Don't you think that song's wonderful? Yes. Yeah. No, that's, that's a... You know, um, it's not quite as obscure as so like soggy noodle though. That's that that's when you're really impressing. <laughs> well, that's getting deeper. That's true. Yeah. 
Uh, then we get Paul talking about uh, the value of A sides and B sides. And he actually name drops Phil Spector here, who I thought was persona non grata at this point. Um, mm. So it was it was interesting that Paul can remember his existence, but not remember the existence of some of Paul's, uh, sorry, George's songwriting. So interesting the, the names of his own bad mates in Wings. Yes. Uh, <laughs> No, no. Uh, so uh, wings. That, that was uh, that was that was Robbie Cunningham, right? No, no. <laughs> Come on, Paul. You know better than that. Um, then we get some of "And I Love Her." And speaking of living in the material world, we get a recreation of Paul's anecdote from "Living in the Material World." For and I love her, you know, Paul coming yep. in, with, uh, George coming in with, with the do 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 do, you know, we've all heard that before. Then we get a, a talk rather than using it as a segue to talk about George more as a songwriter, we talk more about Paul inspiring everyone in the world. You know, everyone became songwriters after the Beatles. No one was no one before the Beatles ever wrote their own songs, according to this documentary. <laughs> Uh, and then we go into a story about how Roy Orbison was already writing his own songs, uh, which I don't think was a, a purposeful uh, joke on the editor's part there, but it certainly made me laugh. Um, then we get the Pretty Woman story. Uh, Paul gives a shout out to the Kinks, which was quite cool as well. As um, We also get some Bob Dylan talk and the fans hating him for going electric, which isn't even a Paul McCartney story that we've heard a million times. That's just a story that everyone's told a million times already like yeah. we definitely didn't need to hear that one we get the uh, losing the sky uh, losing the sky with diamond story with julian and the drawing then um there's a bit where they're where they're, where they're playing some of just the harmonies for losing the sky with diamonds where it's just them going like ah like really high pitched and paul almost snatches the controls away from ruben and like fades them down it's like Oh, these are awful. These, this is why we don't go through the tapes. <laughs> Which, uh, like, Ruben has to like reassure Paul that these like angelic harmonies. But I do get what Paul means in the sense that on their own, without the context of other harmonies and other backing vocals, they do sound kind of weird. They can sound a bit naff, can't they? Yeah. The magic is in how it's all put together. It's true. Yeah, but you know, again, it's it's him showing a lot of humility in this, which is always very endearing, whether it's fake or not. I'm sure there are people watching this going, look at him faking being a nice person. But I got the impression that it was being pretty pretty genuine throughout all of this. Excuse me. Oh, God, hang on. I've got an actual burp coming on. Muted that one. Nicely muted. Oh, oh no, no. Um, sneezes as well and coughs. I'm, 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 I'm a wizard with it now. The trick is, though, is that you have to edit out the sound of your mouse click. <laughs> then Ruben asks Paul about India. We get some Maharishi stuff. We get Dear Prudence with the Mia Farrow story. Uh, we talk about uh, Paul's bass line for this song as well. It's the, it's the fader drop moment for this episode. We talk about Transcendental Meditation and Paul's mantra. I thought for a brief moment he was going to say what his mantra was. I was like, don't do it, Paul. What are you doing? Um, yeah, I, I obviously I don't know what it is, but um, based on my discussion about Ram with Diana Erickson on the One Sweet Dream podcast, I kind of want the mantra just to be the basic one of Ram, because then that album takes on a whole other significance. Totally, totally. Uh, then we end on 
for some reason, just the Hey Jude footage from the David Frost show. Uh, yeah, we'll we'll just cut to that for seven minutes or whatever. Uh, episode four, we get a snippet of Tomorrow Never Knows, and then we get a cold open. Paul talking about the impatience of youth and how the Beatles were these cheeky boys that broke all the rules, a proper stage setter, because it, it's a real non-sequitur. Uh, we cut to Nowhere Man, and then we get a quite interesting interesting story that I'd never heard before, where they want to get like the harsh sound up on the guitar, so they put the treble up all the way to the top, they play that, record that, and then run that tape back through again, and then turn the treble all the way up again, and it gets that jangly guitar sound we get on that song. Thought yeah. that was quite interesting. Yeah. Um, though I have a horrible feeling that everyone already knows that song but me. I got that with quite a few of the song, uh, the anecdotes in this. Um, then we cut to Maxwell's Silver Hammer stuff. We get Mal Evans playing the Anvil, that story. Uh, I like how Rick Rubin and Paul talk about the bass being like a tuba. I thought, I thought that was a fun observation. And I hadn't listened to the isolated bass before, and I think they're absolutely right. It does sound like that. Um, I remember reading somewhere some a controversial opinion that it's actually George playing that bass part. But mm. I don't know whether there's any truth to that or not. Interesting. Ooh. Uh, gonna have to go on Wikipedia and double check, you know? Because um, that will be the source of, uh, of total reliable information. Sorry, sorry, Nicholas. I mean, I'm gonna go on the Paul McCartney project. Don't worry. Um, it's also interesting that Paul couldn't remember whether he played the piano on this track as well, because it's got those... And it did, like, when he said, it sounds like something George Martin might play, the thing that came instantly to my mind is the uh, the piano solo for In My Life, even though it is played at half speed. I was thinking, yeah. did they do that again for this? And it's actually... And they just sped it up could possibly be be that you know the Beatles always reuse tricks just like we said earlier uh then we go on to a topic that I've never heard Paul address directly I know he's talked around it but we get some Moog synthesizer chat uh, we get some footage of the creator of the Moog which I thought was quite cool as well um then we get the uh so Paul solo in a hard day's night and they literally talk about half speed recording there as well uh, talk about George Martin augmenting the classic chord at the start of the song. Then we get the whole, so, you know, George, uh, George Martin, right? Even in World War II, he was kind of like the producer. And I'm like, oh, come on, Paul. Stop. I, like I, I know I have a career of reaching claims, but <laughs> <laughs> that, that one feels like, come on, man. Come on. <laughs> Fair enough. You know, like when whenever George Martin has like a barbecue, and like he he takes control of the barbecue, and he's like the producer, you know. Uh, <laughs> I really Paul. When he makes a cup of tea, yeah, okay, we yeah we get it. Uh, this then cuts to uh, Paul and Rick talking about the tape loop process for Tomorrow Never Knows. Uh, we also hear the alternate version that I think was on one of the anthologies, but that's still really cool just for them to even acknowledge live that there are alternate takes of Beatles tracks. You know, Paul might talk about them in an interview after he's released them, but just to have Paul sat in a room with an alternate Beatles track playing, I thought was quite nice. Um, also the fact that Rick points out how you can't time any of this stuff. I never even considered that. I thought it was a much more uh, specific 
process than that. Like, you know, you know, Yoko and George and John really wanted him. We got a little bit older and a little bit slower. It has to go at 21.3. It's not just that's when it happened to go through the machine at that time. So mm. I'm, I'm not sure whether that makes it more or less impressive or both. You, you know, yeah, I think the answer is both. You know, sometimes you are surprised and a little crestfallen to hear that things were accidental and not by design. But in other ways, that makes you appreciate that the magic of the fact that things happened that way even more. But we, we're not allowed to have the mad, you know, we, uh, we're not allowed to have that for Paul's bass. The bass has to be completely magic, you know. It's learned at yeah. Hogwarts. Um, then with this song still in the background, we get some chat about Ringo's malapropisms, meeting Ringo, Canyon in Hamburg, Royce Storm and the Hurricanes, you know, uh, bourbon and coke there's no bourbon and coke in liverpool uh cut, cut into them listening to what i'd say by ray charles i was convinced they were going to go into a chat about i feel fine here but they don't oh, yeah yeah because it is you know in almost every book you know if you go into revolution in in the head i feel fine the first piece of trivia directly below the fact that it's got uh feedback from the amp in it second fact mm. will be Ringo basically copied the drumline from what I say for this song, so I'm surprised they didn't do that. Uh, though, again, there's 15 hours of footage. I imagine they probably did, and they just yeah. cut to a different part here. Yeah, and, so, and I'm sure Paul talked about playing that song for an hour at a time in Hamburg, and that didn't part of that either. Yeah. Do you know John had a toilet a toilet seat around, around his head? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it'd be funny if it was like far too candid and there's just hours that they had to like not only not include but just delete you know so we're, we're so we're with these hookers in Hamburg right and you know you'll never guess what George did next whoa continuing with the Ringo thing we get a bit of chat about Get Back and his militaristic drum line I thought that was quite quite nice smash yeah, yeah. cut to um, another girl and Paul has a great little line here if the producer doesn't notice a mistake it's not a mistake <laughs> but then yeah. he becomes the sole producer for most of his records from like 1970 onwards so it's like are you are you implying there that there are no mistakes on any of your future albums or are there mistakes from other artists that you have on your albums that you haven't noticed which is uh, <laughs> which is interesting especially since you know Henry McCullough couldn't couldn't get away with one jazzy note on a single you know wings over Europe gig so uh, interesting theory then they discuss the solo for that song and how it's technically an incorrect poorly played solo but paul's playing gives it life and energy we get a pink floyd in the studio chat he mentions the word wings which blew me away i think it's the only time wings is actually mentioned by name of course they don't mention the words red rose speedway because that's when paul met pink floyd at that time we get the live and let die story and we get headbanging here we actually get them just going, and oh, I loved it. I loved it so much. Yes, it was a meme, and yes, there was a part of me going, "Is there a website called uh, transposegif.com?" You know, <laughs> I, I, I just had to make it a GIF right away. Still, still need to. If you don't want to make a GIF for me, I'm sure Ethan Alexanian can make that a GIF for me. I'm pretty sure. But yeah. I also enjoyed how Ruben points out how unexpected the reggae segment is and how the end of the song hints at the beginning of something rather than the end of something. And then Paul launches into his Cockney 
closing chords. Yeah, I, one thing in there that I'm glad he said because it hadn't occurred to me was the fact that the the reggae bit of the song is there partly because so much of that film is set in the Caribbean, mm. and that had never weirdly it's such an obvious thing, but it never occurred to me. I always just thought it was because Linda liked reggae music. And they were on holiday at the time, I think. But um, what he didn't mention, though, was that Linda practically wrote that that well, part. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, you know, if one thing Paul is known for, it's for talking about Linda, no matter who he's currently sleeping with or married to. Mm. And the fact that he didn't bring up Linda there, I thought was slightly odd. Mm. We Denny does not get a single fucking name drop in this show. Yeah. Oh, my God. Phil Spector does. A man who <laughs> shot a woman in the face gets a name drop, but a man who didn't pay him a loan back on time in the late 70s. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, I get it, Denny. You, you've over-egged how much of Muller Kintyre you wrote, but you don't deserve that treatment. You don't, you don't deserve that treatment at all. Then we uh, cut to some real fan service. Like, you know, this is the equivalent of an anime character bending over and revealing underwear, like for me, because we get Check My Machine here. This is this is Paul McCartney flashing his knickers up just for me. This is this was absolutely oh it was it was it was beautiful. It's an obscure solo B-side. It's also one of my all-time favorite Paul tunes. You know what? It was like when Captain America lifted Thor's hammer. Like I'd been waiting for this for ten years. You know, it was it was perfect. Though I did find it a bit annoying that Paul didn't have any specific anecdotes about this song. They were more like generic songwriting platitudes. Like you know, yeah. you're just in the groove and in the moment. It's like no, no, Paul. Why did you use that? specific clip at the start, you know, like, go, 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 sticks. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. you see him, mime, he goes, sticks and stones, may break my Stick, bones. He so he knows it, probably only because Will I Am said that he liked that song. I think that's why it's well, been brought back. That's right. And, and as much as I love the song, and I was geeking out when it was in there, there's a part of me that rolled my eyes and, oh, of course they have to use Check My Machine because that's the flavour of the month. Mm -hmm. That is, he brought it up so many times in the McCartney Three publicity, largely because Will I Am said he liked it. I'm like, Paul, have some confidence in your own songs. Mm. It doesn't have to be something you mentioned because someone else said they liked it. Yeah, the fact that Dave Grohl had the balls to go up on stage and say, "By the way, folks, the best Beatles song is a little song called Hey Bulldog that no one is ever going to talk about before or since, but I'm going to play it for you right now." And I was so happy he did that that because that song needs all all the praise it can let's plow through the last two episodes episode five we open on a cold open of paul talking about how the Beatles were told that they'd never be successful especially since we're from liverpool cut to lovely rita meter made for some reason um we get mm. lots of bopping up and down here very teletubbies-esque kind of cinematography going on here or like you know you know the footage of the lunar landing in the 60s where they're kind of going oh. You know, it's just two men kind of swaying and bopping. Very, very peaceful. Uh, I can definitely see that being some kind of ASMR thing in the future. Of course, Paul once again plays down his own bass line in this song. And it's getting to the point in this series where I wish Paul would just be a little bit more arrogant, actually. Uh, yeah, uh, like you say, own it a little bit more. Then we get the whole 
Sticky Fingers stage fright, I could never be a lead guitarist, Stuart left the band spiel. Then Rick Rubin asks another bullshit question is, did you, did you do any songwriting before Hamburg? And it's like, okay, well, I guess we've got to hear this story now. But at least he went into I Lost My Little Girl, which obviously links back to your last appearance on, on, on this show. Paul played that on Unplugged, of course. Uh, yeah, and there's an irony to the fact that Paul can't sing Maybe I'm Amazed anymore, but he can still try out Thinking of Linking or I Lost My Little Girl. Little girl. He's quite happy to sing those. Yes, uh. he's quite happy <laughs> to sing his most primitive, <laughs> Ill, ill-formed yeah. songs, yeah. Yeah, still, yeah the, the range isn't as great um, for those ones. Then, speaking of a certain documentary called Living in the Material World again, we get uh, Paul doing his version of George watching the footage of this boy, except it's Paul listening to this boy instead. Yeah. I mean, the bit where they isolate John's vocal and Paul's miming along to it, I was in tears at that. Like, that that was beautiful. That was divine footage. And then, of course, it did remind me of when George is watching it and singing along to it in, that, in, the, in the Scorsese doc as well. I don't think they are able to play this boy and not have some sort of emotional resonance gained from that. Then rather quickly, we move on to something and how that was brought to life in the studio, more or less live on the day. Not sure how truthful that was again. We isolate the bass from there again. Obviously, Paul scoffs at when Rick says it's the best thing he's ever heard. I think Paul was a bit like, well, couldn't you have said that about, you know, one of my songs? You know, there there was definitely... Was too busy, yeah. Uh, or maybe something like, "I wish I hadn't given George the best thing ever." Now, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, I like how um, Paul also says he would come in and ruin songs all all the time, which sounds like the most passive aggressive. I'm still clearly not over this bullshit. I I lie awake at night thinking about that thing George said to me in 1967. Kind of mindset ever. Um, well, true. Was... That, that, that's a good point. I think Paul keeps on talking about how his memories of the 60s are so vivid, like it only happened yesterday. And that would mean that hurt and slights would be just as raw. No, I mean, we've all had that uh, moment in our lives where you've, you've, you've left an argument and you're on your way back home or whatever, and you think of the perfect thing to say. Paul's yeah. pre- probably doing that about things said in Hamburg now. <laughs> with a photographic memory you know uh, I wish I, I wish I would have told the guy the Kaiser Keller to go schnell you know but uh, yeah this is uh, another interesting bit we get the guitar solo from Taxman Paul talks about how he's been accused of being a busy bass player which I thought was quite interesting he talks about James Jameson we get a little bit of what's going on as well of course Paul talking about bass can only go into one song though come together mm-hmm. we get a bit of footage of the chuck berry song but i doubt there is any footage of paul talking about the jay levy lawsuit like like, like 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 he talks about it in a way as if they avoided the lawsuit yeah that's right they, they, they cleverly disguised it and no one until now has realized <laughs> no one until rick rubin asked on mccartney three two one has anyone ever noticed yeah john never had to play the exact same song on his own solo album at all they don't linger on this bass line for too long because it's a bass line that's more classic than it is good. It's it's just yeah. a classic groove. It's not, you know, it's not... Bum, bum. Well, it's the exact opposite of City Love Songs, actually, in the sense that that's a really busy, complicated, fancy bass line. 
that everyone says is fantastic and everyone says is one of the best things ever. I couldn't, ne- I, 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 you can't get 10 McCartney fans in a row who can mime the bass line, the silly love songs. You know, it's like, yeah. boom, 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 boom. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah, it's like it's all over the place. I, I um, a lot of my friends who are good bass players, I get them the tab for it, and then I just play the song, and they're like, "What the fuck is this? This is ridiculous." And uh, that totally proved to me that Paul is a very busy, busy bass player. But there's, what's wrong with that? You know? No, and I, I wish that if if there was one song, if I could choose one song to include. In three, two, one, that wasn't present. I'd probably choose silly love songs. I wish there'd been some footage of them talking about that. Faders down, just the harmonies. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh, but you know, then he'd have to address Linda, and then there'd be some footage of Nancy in the in the background, just with her arms crossed. Like, <laughs> I'm surprised she didn't make Paul become a meat eater again out of out of spite. You know. Uh, <laughs> then we get some talk about. The, uh, the Scotland period, which he phrases as him being a hippie farmer, not a depressed stoner alcoholic um, hermit man, which again, a little bit of a rosy tinted glasses look at the past there. But this leads into junk, which I thought was quite delightful actually. Quite horrible that they show Ram era footage though over junk, like, you know, stuff up in Scotland, that's Ram imagery. I know it's technically the McCartney one era, but the imagery is distinctly Monkberry Moon Delight, Heart of the Country-esque stuff. And I thought they were going to go into this after, but um, yeah, Paul actually comments on his non-vocalizations in junk as jazz. I like <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. That's a, a perfect way of describing Paul's non-vocal talents. It's just that... Do, 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 there's, just do an album of that, Paul. You can do that in your current vocal re- register. Um, yeah, although it's it's weird that they would cut to colour footage of the Ram era, if only because the sound of junk, as I was saying to you on an earlier episode, is so French New Wave. If ever there was a song that suited black and white footage and maybe with a lot of cigarette smoke, <laughs> what the, yeah, it's junk. And, and a beret, definitely. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I'm just thinking, though, to make it even more French, you'd have to cut it in weird places, like weird jump cuts, just to move move it forward slight, slightly. Yeah. Uh, what film am I referencing there? Is it a Buddha Souffle? Yeah, a Buddha Souffle, yeah. I think that's how you say it, but it's pre-pronounced in French, so I've probably said it wrong. Anyway, after that, we get to a very excellent panning shot of Paul on the piano, this sweeping grand motion for like eight seconds and then they cut to just them in the studio listening to maybe i'm amazed rather than listening to paul play maybe i'm amazed (laughs) um bit of a weird tease we discussed that earlier what was cool though paul thought um the plastic owner band album was going to be called lennon and uh i'd never heard that i'd never heard that Paul thought that and so he took the idea and called his album mccartney based on that that yeah, was a that fun was, little revelation. Yeah. I remember somebody proposing that as a theory. I think it was on, you, you may have to bleep this out, Sam. I'm sorry. Nothing is real. Um, one, one of the hosts of that uh, podcast did propose McCartney as a, a very pointed reference to the absence of Lennon and in one of their episodes. Um, and so, was, yeah, I'm sure he probably felt vindicated when Paul confirmed that. Then, towards the end of episode five, we get uh, Paul 
uh, and Rubin together. And Rick Rubin gets a, a quote about Lennon, apparently, <laughs> where he reads this quote from Lennon saying that Paul's this great bass player and that everyone's ripping him off. And he's always been coy about his great bass playing. He's a great, great musician. And then if you actually look at the real quote, there's a bit where Lennon actually said, he's an egomaniac and everything is about himself. But his bass playing, he was always coy about. And Rick Rubin just deletes this history in this Stalin-esque manner. And I know we, we, we mentioned earlier that this isn't a fluff piece, but that's fluffy as hell. Yeah. It would have taken the joy out of that moment, I think, if he'd have left that egomaniac quote in there. But an interesting way to end that episode, I think, with a lie. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, uh, we end on Held Skelter. And then just to go through episode six, we get footage of Paul doing yesterday. It came to him in a dream. This is actually about a third of the episode, one of the oldest stories we've heard. Then I like Paul talking about how his lack of being able to read music is part of the Celtic bardic aural yeah. tradition. Great, <laughs> uh, great kind of rationalization for your own yeah. madness there. We get some Kansas City, hey, hey, hey some discussion of James Ray and his unique vocals and using the, the waltz and how that album also had I Got My Mind Set On You, all nice links there. Cut to, nice. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we get Paul and Rick over the console listening to Andrew Burke can sing. And this is leads to a great speech about the energy and the excitement of that song. And I'm glad it got a standout moment because, I mean, especially in like um, Revolution in the Head, that song is just, it's got like one paragraph and no one ever gives it any heed and I know Lennon wrote it off as a minor track as well so it's nice that Rick said no no it's a good song and then you get that little bit at the end where Paul goes yeah they were a good band that <laughs> that's, that's always his way so a great little band yeah I, I think you know Paul has been struggling to ever follow we were just a band that made it very very big that's all like you can't follow that quote that is just the ultimate brief summary of the Beatles we, we get some more John discussion then we get uh, him saying that John really liked Here, There and Everywhere. But he mentions that John liked Here, There and Everywhere in the Alpine Hills yes. whilst filming Help, which is like yes. two years before. So this yeah. is another straight of historical inaccuracy, right? Well, yeah, this is, this is one where I really want to make one final point. And I've heard Paul tell this story often enough that I wanted to entertain whether or not this might be true. And I thought, mm. well, what would the necessary conditions be for, for that story to be 100% accurate? Paul has also said he wrote here, there and everywhere, sitting by John's pool at Kenwood on a summer's day while waiting for him to wake up and that they finished the song together mm. after John woke up. So if they had some kind of recording of it to play in the chalet in Austria, in February, March, 1965. That means the song must have been written in the summer of 1964, which is possible because John had just bought Kenwood and put the pool in, in July of 64. But that would mean that they would have had to sit on the song for two years, which is odd, especially as that two year period covers the making of Rubber Soul, an yeah. album where they were really scratching around for material so much that they nearly put 12 bar original on the album. So yeah, I think the, the evidence is stacked against the authenticity of that anecdote, especially when you consider other things like Paul saying that um, 
the composition was in, partly inspired by how good the Beach Boys' God Only Knows what was. And he couldn't have heard that song before 1966. And the, the lyric sheets for Here, There and Everywhere is literally written on the back of a list of their commitments for 1966. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, yeah, no. I'm, I'm calling Paul out on the, the accuracy of that anecdote, even though he said it so many times. I'm, I'm, I'm impressed at the hoops you went through to get that to work, though. It's, it's I tried. A... I wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt because I think it's just good, you know, it's good practice to see whether that might be true. But it's it's just so inconceivable from so many angles. It's uh, theories to suit facts rather than facts to suit theories. I think there. Yeah. Uh, very interesting. Almost as as interesting as how he mentions that he and John wrote three hundred songs and they were all finished. I'm like, that's bollocks as well. Like, I'm sorry, you don't remember the unfinished ones. Like, that's why they're that's why they're unfinished, Paul. Because you talk about how you would forget songs and you would remember them the next day. Uh, and I mean, one of the songs you played earlier, "Junk," that's arguably unfinished. But I'm not. I'm not going to uh, go go into that. Then we cut to the two of them listening to the massive orchestral swell featured in "A Day in the Life." I think we all knew they were going to talk about "A Day in the Life" in the sixth episode. It's it, it's just a natural flow. This goes into Paul talking about the avant-garde, but he doesn't say it in the. I was the one first. He just mentions he was into it. He's toned that down a, a little yeah. bit. I think. I think. I think he, he he knows that that book came out, you know, Paul McCartney and the avant-garde. Oh, finally, I've been vindicated, you know. Obviously, that's a story we've heard all heard, heard before as well. We cut back to them listening to the song from the beginning. I like how uh, Rick talks about the bass here and Paul goes, and the drums too. Like, he really like defends Ringo's drums as being important in this song, which yeah. I liked. He mentions how the middle eight for that song was already written, which I didn't know. I didn't recall that at all. I thought he kind of wrote that on the spot uh, for John. Rubin then discusses Paul's very free contributions to the song, take away from its folky roots. Again, kind of like with a lot of John's songs, how they come in quite simple and Paul judges them up. Then they cut to this chaotic piano that's buried in the mix and Paul goes, that has to be me. That was great. <laughs> um, and then he does this party trick, which I love. He's like, so I noticed how long a chord will go if you hold the, the pedal down on the piano. And then he just sits there for ages. <laughs> And the camera has to break the silence by saying something. Paul would have sat there for another four minutes. Yeah, he would have. It was great. It was great. And then he uh, finally, he just uh, mentions how there's an extra little chord thrown in that he doesn't mention by name, thrown in by George Martin, just to augment again that final chord, which mm. I, I didn't realise he did that because it nicely uh, mirrors the opening of A Hard Day's Night. So he's augmenting the beginning of that album and the end of this other album. And then we end with the guitar solo battle from the end. And there we are, Duncan. We have finished our deep dive into McCartney 321. Uh, overall, this is, would you say, an essential purchase, an essential watch, an essential stream, an essential illegal download for any uh, McCartney fan? Or is this just another thing to add to the collection as a nice entry? Look, I'm, 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 as much as I'd like to say it's essential, it's probably more a nice supplementary thing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I, I'm glad it exists. And some of it was genuinely revelatory and moving and fascinating. Mm -hmm. But uh, I don't know for, for anyone who's not super fan level how much it's going to really enhance 
things. I don't know. What do you think? I think it's a fantastic piece to have on streaming. I think as a way to introduce people, a whole new generation to Paul, I think this is a fantastic way to do that. And I think it's been built with that in mind. I think whenever whenever a studio says, oh, we're going to talk about the obscure songs, or we're going to talk about stuff that hasn't been discussed before, that's just media spiel. Of course, they're going to say yeah. things we've heard before because there's only a limited number of stories. But I felt like this overall was a big, warm cuddle. You know, it was a bedtime story from your favourite grand dude. It's some of your favourite tales. Her, you, you know, you've heard them before, but they're being... You know when Monty Python did, and now for something completely different for the American market, it's the sketch mm. show. It's the sketch show that you know, but with a bigger budget and done better. And yeah. this is like, you know, this is, this is you know, uh, many years from now, but TLDR, too long, didn't read. You know, this is everything boiled down into the essentials. And, you know, within a few months, there will probably be a super cut on YouTube of all the new <laughs> stuff. And it totals about seven minutes. And if you can't be bothered to watch all six episodes, go and watch that video in the future. But you are missing out because the dynamic between Paul and Rick is great. Paul is as electric and you know just magnetic as always. The cinematography and the camera work is actually quite delightful, but in a non-distracting way. The music in it, of course, is it's it's, it's Paul McCartney and Beatle music. What more do you want? But uh yeah, it's not it's not setting the world on fire. Um, it's kind of already dipping out of the general conversation. I think it's going to be probably be forgotten in a few years, sadly. But for now, folks, while it's up on streaming, whilst it's under the veil of the big mouse, check it out. <laughs> um, thank you, Duncan, for coming uh, to discuss this with me. I'm sure My we've pleasure. got uh, lots of stuff with One Sweet Dream coming up in the near future. Well, Diana's um, taking a, a well-deserved break for a little while, but we do have, no word of a lie, at least 10 hours of discussion recorded specific to John Lennon. So for everyone who finds the podcast very Paul-focused, it is there. It's, it's all in the can. Diana just has the unenviable task of wading through it and, and making something listenable from it. Well, just give it to Peter Jackson and he'll have it out in seven years. You know what I mean? <laughs> Now, I've, I've got these Negra real footage tapes of uh, One Sweet Dream, right? And it's actually clicking footage, you know? It's, uh, it's brilliant. And then, <laughs> and then maybe maybe we'll, we'll get Andy Serkis to come and do some mocap as, as, as Dr. Duncan Driver, you know? <laughs> Excellent. Kate Blanchett as Diana Erickson. I think you'd be happy with those castings. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dude. We haven't known each other all all that long, but you know we met just a couple of months ago, and I've been just always looking for ways to get to get you back on the show because I love chatting Beatles with you. So, Likewise, thank you for rather spontaneously deciding to do this. I mentioned this in my little intro, but it's only because you were unfortunate enough to casually ask me what I thought of McCartney Three Two One that you're now here, away from your family, discussing this <laughs> this very supplementary, like you say, documentary series, but. I, I'm glad you found the time anyway, so thank you for coming on, dude. My pleasure. Thank you for telling me what you think of it. Awesome. Everyone, thank you for listening to another episode of Paul or Nothing. Patreon people, thank you for watching. But enough of that. Keep listening to Paul. Play a sound.
With Penny Lane, I'd come into the studio, and the night before, I'd, I happened to be watching on television uh, the Brandenburg Concertos by Bach. Yeah. I just kind of got it in the background almost, you know, I'm listening to it. And then there's a little trumpet, very high little trumpet that Bach uses. Mm. And I came in the next day, I said to George, I said, George uh, Martin, yeah. I said, what was that? He said, oh, that's a piccolo trumpet. Anything about George, he knew all the best players yeah. from the classical orchestras. And there's a guy called David Mason, who was a really good player. And so we just booked him. Yeah. So we go in there and we've done the track and we're ready to put this. We've left room for a solo. George yeah. and David sort of say, okay, so what do we want, what do we want to play? And I go, um, and they go, oh, okay, hang on. And they're writing it down. So we were kind of making it up on the spot. Yeah. And so I went, and put like an impossible high note. And David Mason turns to me and says, well, that's officially out of the range of the piccolo trumpet, even. And I kind of give him a look like, yeah, like, you can do it. You know, he goes, Okay, so he plays it, and it's uh, it haunted him for the rest of let's his life. You know, <laughs> yeah. The flute's beautiful too. Yeah, yeah, it's a mix of the two. Yeah. 